Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest today is Arjun Bhuptani, the founder of Connext. Uh, Connext is an interoperability protocol for L2 Ethereum. Connext enables moving value and call data between EVM chains without introducing trust assumptions. It's also leveraged by infrastructure networks like the Graph for ultra-scalable microtransactions. Connext is one of the more complex concepts in crypto, at least from my perspective. And so I spent some time digging deep into what Connext is really doing, what they're trying to accomplish, and how they can grow and expand in the blockchain world. Arjun was very thoughtful and articulate in both explaining Connext and also very open-minded to brainstorming the different ways that the organization can grow. This is one of the longest conversations that I've had with the guest. And as you can tell, Arjun and I really had great chemistry in exploring different topics. We dove into many different domains from political organization to organization of society as a whole uh, to much, much more. And I very much enjoyed the conversation. And I learned a lot, and I think my worldview shifted a decent amount. So appreciate Arjun. Uh, he is a uh, he has a graduate of physics and philosophy, and incredibly technically smart. Uh, the company has raised about twelve million dollars. I know that they're planning on launching a token in the not too distant future, and it's an incredible project to follow. So check out Connext, spelled C-O-N-N-E-X-T, dot network for more information. Here is Arjun Bhuptani. Arjun, I'm excited to, to chat with you more in detail, man. Um, I, I, I love what you're working on. You've been doing this since 2017, I believe. Um, in your words, how do you briefly describe the current trajectory of Connects, what, what the organization is trying to accomplish in the world? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, um, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, so Connects is a, um, um, at the highest level, Connects is trying to build a way for uh, blockchains to communicate with each other. Um, like our vision of the future is that blockchains don't scale intrinsically. And this is something that people have, have been talk, talking about since 2017, pretty much since we, since we started Connects. Um, and, uh, and 
what we've found over time is that the, the, the best way to kind of scale out blockchain based ecosystems is to, uh, is to kind of scale them horizontally like you would with servers. You just like add more kind of scale, like chain like environments in parallel. Um, there's a little bit more complexity to that, but like, uh, we, uh, what it looks like to the user is like interacting with many, many cha- chains in parallel. Now, of course, this creates this like big user experience hurdle of, um, I am on XYZ chain and my, you know, have funds in a wallet there and I want to go interact with an application on another chain. How do I do that? Um, and then even, even beyond that, like the, the concept of needing to think consciously about like, I'm here and I need to go here is itself just such a huge hurdle for people. Um, so what we want to do is create a world where A, users don't ever really need to know or care what chains they're on. And B, developers can actually build applications that, uh, similar to web applications today, like, pull resources from different place sam- places simultaneously. Um, you know, applications that are natively cross-chain, they are natively uh, built to interact with uh, pools of liquidity in multiple ecosystems all at once. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> classic mute mistake. Uh, when you say running on multiple chains, do you mean that to be within one uh, crypto or, or would you say layer one, or like w- multiple chains does it make say make sense to say multiple chains within a layer one, or is this help me understand? Yeah, that a that's a good bit. question. That's a really good question, um, and it's it's a good question because things have gotten like really messy lately in the sense that like it's you know that we we previously had this very clear taxonomy of like there was like Bitcoin and then there was like Ethereum. There was a bunch of other stuff that like none of none of that really had a lot of traction. Um, and so Ethereum was a layer one, and then everybody was thinking, okay, let's scale Ethereum out by building layer twos, like scalability solutions on top of Ethereum um, that are like directly tied with the Ethereum ecosystem in some way. Um, and in theory, layer two solutions are supposed to also like always have the, like basically rely on their layer one for security. Um, now, of course, those do exist now. Those are called rollups. Um, and, and rollups are like a fantastic mechanism to, to solve the scalability issue. But what we've also seen is that like, You've had the proliferation of like uh, EVM, Ethereum compatible sidechains, uh, like Polygon, uh, and, and I guess BSC technically is, is that. Um, and then you have, uh, other e- Ethereum compatible layer ones like Avalanche. Um, and then you have this like even newer, more interesting phenomenon where you have a bunch of other ecosystems that are not EVM compatible, like, like Polkadot and Cosmos, um, and even Solana where, where, the, and, and Near, where they have built their own like, uh, EVM chains uh, that act as sort of like a gateway between Ethereum, like the Ethereum ecosystem and their ecosystem. I think it's because more and more people have found out that like, uh, you know, it's just like from a network effects perspective, it's just so much easier to tap into the existing tooling around um, the Ethereum community than it is to go and try to bootstrap that tooling yourself. Um, so I guess the answer to that for Connect is is it's complicated. Um, we We are fundamentally an Ethereum... Uh, like project in the sense that we we started with that ecosystem and we work really closest with that ecosystem. But um, what we found is that like there are people kind of in all ecosystems as, and like for at the moment connects to deploy down Ethereum compatible chains in all of these different sorts of ecosystems. So there's people in uh, in places like Avalanche and and like the Cosmos ecosystem things like that um, that are also heavily using using us. Um, and then of course uh, we now have a lot of interest in also porting to other chains entirely, um, things like Solana, uh, things like Terra, which are, which are completely not Ethereum compatible. So, um, I think the, the thesis is like eventually, uh, you know, we'll probably have like 
Ethereum compatibility dominance everywhere. And so that, that will be the majority of the network. But, um, uh, I think eventually, similar to the internet, you're going to be touching places that are a little bit le- like more heterogeneous. Um, and you, you'll still want to like access it, like applications and use cases there. Yeah. Do, do you see any, uh, is the basic advantage of having Ethereum at this point integrate with so many other layers and projects and apps and dApps is that it's the, it, it's just become the network effect where it's, it's not to say it's perfectly designed and I'm sure there'll constantly be improvements, but is there a, is there sort of an intrinsic need for all human beings and crypto to be building on one, uh, one protocol or or does that kind of does that does that situation in and of itself present a uh an instability where it's like that's likely to explode out and then there'll be you know five or ten like do you see that as how do you see that like i'm fascinated by ethereum and it's it's propensity for success or failure however you define that I'm fascinated by it too. And I, I actually would love to dive into that because I think I've spent a lot of time trying to understand like what are the things that has made Ethereum super successful. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that you wouldn't really expect. Like I, I don't think Ethereum has done a great job of executing in many ways, but at the same time, I think the community is incredible and like the, mm. the culture is incredible. Um, I think in this specific case, it's, it's actually like, I actually, like my mental model for it is that it's there. It's kind of similar to JavaScript where it's like, if you ever talk to any, any software developers about JavaScript and about, you know, web development and the fact that JavaScript, like JavaScript basically won web development. Um, and everybody hates JavaScript, right? Nobody, nobody thinks it's a good paradigm for building applications at all, but it's everywhere. And it's, it's, it's so common now. And it's so like ubiquitous now that, that people are just like, okay, well, we might as well just find ways to like make this thing better. And, and they have made the experience of utilizing JavaScript, which is things like TypeScript and stuff like that a lot, a lot better than it used to be. But, um, but it's like people have, you know, it's like the ultimately what it was was just the, sort of like the the network effect and the Lindy of uh, of all of the developer tooling and all of the people that went and built a bunch of JavaScript applications and wrote tutorials and like created like modules for people to use. And um, I think that's that's kind of what's happening in the Ethereum ecosystem. Where it's like, you know, Solidity isn't great in many ways. The Ethereum virtual machine isn't great in many ways. Um, a lot of people in the space, and they're absolutely right about this. There's a lot of like technical researchers in the space that are like, you know, no, if we're going to build another system, we might as well build something a lot better. Like, yeah, because there are better options. You know, this kind of reminds me at the same time. As a a slight tangent to this, it's just by by analogy, it feels like if you consider what evolution is, and the the evolutionary design process, you take something that that is like your MVP, and then you just keep adding to it and adding to it. And you don't rarely do you hit the hard reset and then just start over yeah. again. Uh, and I learned about this recent uh, <laughs> example of this in the real world. So a giraffe has a a thing called a um, a recur- it's called a recurrent laryngeal nerve, and basically it's it goes from its its mouth it, all the way down its neck around some some part of its spine all the way up to its brain. And so it has this, this it's a really important nerve that like tells it what it's eating and everything else. And and the signal has to go all the way down and all the way up the neck, which is obviously very long, where it would make way more sense if it just went right there, but it's never going to reroute itself, you know, because a nerve. So it's like, as the draft necks extended, it has become far less practical than it was when it was like our configuration. So yeah, but continue on. So (laughs) 
It's actually really interesting because uh, like I, I, this is something that I spent a bunch of time thinking about too, is like you, when you have like the progress of, I guess like the, the way that progress happens and the way that innovation happens. Um, and, and I guess the way that evolution happens, like the way that things move forward tends to be this iterative process. And like, you don't really tend to go back and redo things unless the thing that you went back and, and like, basically, I think the conditions that you have to meet in order for it to be worthwhile to do something like that is that the, the new mechanism of doing something has to just be like 10x better. Um, and if it's not like you, you know, the, the, the activation energy needed to go all the way back and redo things, even if it's like two or three times better, the activation energy to go, to go back and redo it is, is not worth it. And I, and I've, I kind of wonder why that is. I mean, I feel like it has probably has to do with the fact that like, if you were constantly able to just like make small iterative two X, three X changes, I don't think that anything would ever go anywhere. Um, because like you'd spend so much time redoing a bunch of work that has already been done that, um, that like you wouldn't actually have real progress. Um, and so like, it, it's almost like there's a, there's a, some sort of fundamental natural law around, around the idea of like, you know, do pinky toes need to exist? No, they're a completely useless appendage, but is it genuinely worthwhile for evolution to get rid of them? Absolutely not. And <laughs> if it isn't worthwhile, then it's just not going to happen. Um, it's and like, like, like the male you know, nipple. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, so it, I think, I think that definitely is the case in the Ethereum ecosystem. There's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of dumb stuff, uh, associated with Solidity. There's a lot of gotchas. There's a lot of really like strange things about it, but the, the amount of time and effort required to go and change them and the amount of, versus the amount of benefit that you get out of them is very, like, it's, it's just, it just isn't, that calculus isn't there yet for, I think, most people at this stage. How about the important parts of, of Ethereum? Like the, the, the gas prices everyone talks about, you know, the amount of effectively the amount of money it would take to send money back and forth. Somebody sent like a $90 Ethereum transfer and it costs a hundred dollars in, in gas fees. That seems like a major structural design concern. Is that something you've investigated or have a perspective on? Yeah. Um, so prior to being a, uh, a bridge and interoperability organization connects was a, a research and development lab. We were actually working, uh, we've been working since 2017 on scalability. And this was something that we were really focused on because we, um, like our, the whole thesis behind why we started Connects was let's find a way to, we had really, really strongly believed in, in the technology. We really strongly believed that this, um, that this, like that Ethereum and this, and this broader ecosystem can actually produce a lot of material good for the world. Um, and so the goal was always, okay, how can we actually bring this to a wider audience? Not just in terms of user experience, but actually scale the technology, get there. Um, now, one of the things that I think, um, you know, we've, we've sort of like, we've talked about this now for many, many years, but it's it's like, as the community grows and grows and grows, like, it, you end up having to repeat it, because there's like new people coming in that are like, oh, like, why is Ethereum so expensive? And I think something that that has been apparent to a lot of people in the space since 2017 is like, the layer one itself is not designed for for to be operated in that way. It's like, it's not, it shouldn't be operated in that way. Layer one block space is fundamentally extremely scarce and extremely expensive, extremely valuable. Um, and so there's no real reason why you shouldn't just be like running every kind of application on on layer twos to begin with, and then just reserving layer one block space for layer two proofs to get to just like uh, uh, only for layer two proofs and only having proofs actually happen there. Um, this is something that like we used to talk about a lot when we were like, yeah, let's let's find ways to make it so that users never, you know, this was this was in the context of things like plasma and state channels, which are early layer two constructions. 
And the, the topic was always like, okay, well, you know, we understand that users have to do X, Y, Z, but let's try to find it. Let's try to find ways to make it so that users never have to go back to layer one if they don't want to. They could just go to layer two. It's a one-time migration, then they just stay there forever. Um, I think that's like, I think that was a bit naive because we we didn't really realize like how piecemeal a lot of this stuff was going to be. We didn't realize like there's going to be this huge ecosystem that now has to migrate and like people, you know, you have all of the again, it's like the Lindy of like all of the exchanges plug into Ethereum layer one and not layer two yet. A lot of the wallets only support layer ones, not all of the layer twos. Like all of these, like all of these little gotchas that make it so that it's still like more valuable for people in some cases for people to like do things on layer one than it is on layer two. But the reality is, I, I think the long-term goal was always, yes, Ethereum is too expensive. Like it is, it's designed to be, uh, it's, that's where that's what you're paying for is the security. So, but you can do the like sub five cent transactions on layer two. Um, and there's no, there's, it's like, that's only going to get cheaper with time as well. It, it, the layer two transactions will get cheaper with time. Yeah. And, and do you, and layer one will get more expensive. Really? And then do you see what, what, what's the practical use of someone of ether, uh, to people in the future? I assume like, tell me how you see this, tell me how you see this differently is that in the future, as we're building forth, we converge in a world where people aren't buying ether to do things. They're buying and using and trading and exchanging on layer two apps. Layer one, people might still own it to own an investment stake in Ethereum. Is that kind of how you see it? Is that there's this, it's almost like the, the land grab underneath uh, isn't really used for anything other than just investment speculation? Kind of. So the, one of the big things that ETH will do once ETH2 rolls around is like the, the asset itself is used for economic security. Um, so the amount of stake ETH is directly correlated with it, like it basically di- directly represents the security of the system. Um, and so, you know, the idea is like the, the strength of the asset comes from the fact that you want this to be as secure of a system as possible. You want to stake as much of it as possible, um, in order to operate this ecosystem. Um, this isn't, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a slightly different economic model than like proof of work, uh, in that like you have, uh, you're not, you know, you're not taking, you're, you're not selling your assets to go buy a bunch of computing hardware and then using that computing hardware. So you're using the, the assets directly. And, and so it's like a little bit, you're sort of like closing the loop on, on the, the activity that's already happening from the, from the perspective of miners. Um, but I think one other thing there that's interesting is that a lot of the layer twos also will use ETH as their gas asset to begin with anyway. So like Arbitro and Optimism are going to definitely continue doing that forever. Um, ZK Sync will definitely do that. Um, and I think many, many of the others will also try to do that. Um, of course, there is a, you know, a like, you know, price action benefit of having your own token be used on the layer two, but, but the, the user experience hurdle is also a lot bigger then because the user has to like go and say, okay, well, I, I'm on to this layer two on, on this like roll up or whatever. Um, now I need to figure out how to get the, the gas. And this is something that we de- deal with all the time. It's like users bridge from one chain to another and, you know, they're like, oh, this is, this was an awesome experience. And then they're there and then they're like, oh, how do we pay for anything? <laughs> all right. Now we have to go fi- figure out some way to get the, the like actual chains native asset over. And most of those are not available on bridges. And it's just, it's just like a huge mess. Um, is, is the is the pathway forward to have better bridges between different uh, chains, side chains off of Ethereum? Um, to solve that problem, I think there's a couple of things. So one of the things that 
a lot of people are doing and our community's asked us a bunch about this. We're, we're working on it. We just have, we haven't like prioritized it as much yet. Um, but like we, we have some instances where we've done this where we just like, we just like dust wallets. Um, so any, any new wallet that bridges over to an ecosystem just gets like a very, very, very tiny airdrop that allows them to do like a couple of transactions. Um, and, uh, and that basically gives them, gives enough money to like then use the funds that you bridged over, swap them for more gas. And that way you can go and use the ecosystem. I personally still just dislike that whole user flow. I mean, I, I think the whole concept of needing to dust wallets is silly too. And it's like, it's like this, this may be just my like neuroticism and OCD, but I'm just like, I don't like having a lot of dust of a bunch of different assets in, in every wallet either. I think it's just kind of silly. Um, so I, I think like, I think the better thing in the future will be just like uh, one of the things that connects allows you to do will be like actually calling contracts across chain. So I think one of the core things that will happen is like uh, whatever activity users want to do on XYZ chain, they'll just actually do it, but pay gas on ascending chain. They won't, they won't have to like pay gas on the receiving chain ever to begin with. Um, and they could just keep their assets on that sending chain as well if they'd like. Um, the other, the other kind of use case that I think is going to be interesting is like uh, being able to, to swap into any asset on the receiving chain using local liquidity from a DEX. So like, um, this is something that like, I was actually really, really pushing for this uh, a year ago. And there were a lot of people that were really, really saying like, no, this is not going to work. Um, you know, of course you want, like every, every token is going to want to be listed on a bridge. Um, and they're going to want to bootstrap bridge liquidity and stuff. But the reality is every, every, every token issuer has already gone through this whole process where they've like, gone and built liquidity for their token on a bunch of DEXs, and they've usually paid a bunch of incentives to do that. Um, and so the cost of actually doing that and maintaining it is quite high for them. Um, I think the idea that they would then also go and do that for a bridge in order to take their token across chains is is kind of, it's like, it's just a, it's a higher cost than what most people are going to be capable of paying or will want to pay in many cases. Um, there's going to be some, there's obviously going to be notable exceptions where like a lot of the blue chip assets, of course, get liquidity everywhere. Um, for instance, in our case, like we see the most liquid things being stablecoins, ETH, WBTC, and then to an extent, some of the like chains native tokens that are being used for gas sometimes. Um, but for anything else, this long tail, like if you have, you know, if you have uh, uh, USDC on one chain and what you're trying to get to is, is like um, XYZ shitcoin on another chain that doesn't have a lot of liquidity, it seems silly like that, that you would need to go and find some bridge with liquidity for it. Versus just transfer the USDC over and as part of the same transaction source liquidity from from like a local AMM um, or a local DEX. Um, Can I pause you there? You've covered a lot of ground. Uh, so the, let, let me let me recap the the dusting concept to make sure I, I get it. So dusting is this concept where uh, wallets are airdrops with a number of different cryptos into the wallets to incentivize people to make a few early transactions. Is that kind of the, the, the reason behind dusting just to get people exactly. familiar it's with like, it? Yeah. Usually this will be done by like the chains implementation team. So like, for example, the polygon bridge did this for a while where any account that transferred over the polygon bridge, the first time they transferred would just receive a small amount of Matic. It wasn't a ton. It was just like enough for 10 transactions or something. Um, but it was just enough that that way you could actually go and do things on the chain. You weren't just stuck there um, right. and stranded forever until somebody gave you to gas. Right. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And, and change, chains are usually, chain operators are usually happy to kind of do this because it's a, it's just a way to get people to use things and it doesn't really cost a lot. 
Yeah, it feels similar to the marketing concept of giving people, you know, you sign up for Coinbase and you get $10 or $20 in, in Bitcoin, and then you can move around, you get comfortable with it. And then, you know, you're more likely to, to purchase more and use the wallet more. So did you, and the exactly. problem with that, you feel is, is it that a, from a purist standpoint, do you feel that the, uh, these tokens and these chains shouldn't do this or that it's messy somehow? Because what, what's, what's the, reason to not want to do this so i keep kicking my my table oh, oh. um <laughs> um i think the uh the uh so there's a couple of problems with it um the first is that it's not like it's it, you have to sort of be careful about like it being abused because um you know the it's it's not easy to like go create a bunch of new coinbase accounts um and like you know potentially get thousands of dollars of like free Coinbase credits because you, uh, you just like create a mass, like a hundred, uh, accounts all like in a day and, uh, and got all bootstrapped all that liquidity. Um, whereas in, you know, on a blockchain, it's like that it, it costs you nothing to like go and generate a bunch of keys. Um, so that's one of the issues is sort of the civil attack vector of like mm. people just go and create a bunch of accounts and get a bunch of the gas and like, just like, uh, get, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically take all of the dust funds away from the pool. Um, there's really no way to stop that. I think like the chains that kind of do it, they just sort of keep an eye on it. And if it happens, they're just like, ah, okay, well that sucks. Um, but there's no real way to do anything about it. Um, I think the other thing you- is also just like, it, uh, it's still like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you what, when I think about the reason that that doesn't happen on Coinbase or happen on Uber or any other apps, it's generally that they require an email confirmation or SMS text confirmation. And, and it's really hard to get like, you know, infinite amount of emails. You can do it, but it's like, uh, hindrance. Do you feel that there's, could they implement a similar strategy? Like, could you have, or is that just anti the whole concept of decentralization in the first place? Like, could, is there anything that you could use That's to exactly. slow people down? Um, you could, I mean, I think that people have done stuff like that. They've like, basically, I know that there's some instances where folks have built mechanisms, slightly more complex mechanisms to dust accounts, where it's like, they, uh, you know, they like check to see a little bit about the transaction history and make sure that this is like a, an account that has a certain amount of transactions in it and things like that. Um, so there's some, there's basically some like spam filtering that you can do. Um, I think checking for actual identity is, is like more difficult because, it does kind of go against like the, yeah. the, the reason that people are using the space anyway. So it's like from the perspective of a user, you're using something like a, a bridge or, or some sort of cross chain mechanism to get, get between chains because like you could go through a centralized exchange for that. You could go through Coinbase, but the whole kind of benefit is that you don't need to because you uh, are using this like on chain mechanism rather than having to go create an account in Coinbase. Mm-hmm. Um, so having to then go create an account in a bridge to do it sort of defeats the purpose. Um, and I mean, I think that's not really the only purpose, but it, it does defeat like a part of the purpose for a lot of the people in the same way that like, if you had email requirements for DEXs, a lot of people would be like, well, I'll just go use Coinbase then. Yeah, 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 that's really not, you lose the whole advantage in the first place. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately, exchanges closed, accounts frozen, We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by Zen Go. These guys realize that 
storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. That makes sense. Uh, all right. So yeah, I can see that just being a situation that is like slowed, but never really fully contained, uh, which is the game. Um, so then fast forward to the, the last point you're making around um, the side chains and the gas on, on, on Ethereum. I, tell me, expand more on, around that. So um, this is the case that you were making that you thought other people thought would be impossible why, why did they yeah. think it was impossible to do? And can you explain what it is again, the debate? Yeah, so the idea is basically like, uh, this kind of get, ties back to the earlier concept that I said, which is like, the the ideal end state is that users don't have to consciously think about what chain they're on. Right? That, that like needing to do that is something that you don't really do on the internet today. Like there was a, there was a brief period in the inter- internet's history where uh, not really brief, but there was a period in the internet's history where you actually had to like manually co- connect to another network, right? You were just like, I am here in this university and I'm connecting to this other network right. somewhere else in the world. Um, and you actually had to like type in Telnet, blah, 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 in order to actually get there. Um, you don't do that anymore because that's just terrible user experience. Um, and, uh, and I think, I think like we'll, as the number of chains proliferates, as the ecosystem grows, you know, and we'll sort of have to see where it ends up. But I think like, it's going to be increasingly likely that we end up in some sort of place where you'll have a separation between the chains, which are kind of like the infrastructure layer that developers care about, and then the application, which is what the user cares about. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea is that all of this can be abstracted behind the application layer, where from the application's perspective, or like from the user's perspective, interacting with the application, they don't need to know that this thing is running on many different chains all at once. Um, they don't need to know that they are on XYZ chain, they need to get this up, get to this other chain to be able to use this app. Um, instead, what should just happen is like, they should just pay gas on the chain that they're on, um, and just make a transaction and it should just work wherever they are. So that's, that's kind of, you know, it's like, I'm like, I, you know, I understand as an interrupt solution, dusting and stuff makes a lot of sense, but I think the ideological I, like solution or my, the, my ideal solution is, is basically, um, 
get to the point where it just doesn't even matter because as a, as a user, you are just always using applications no matter where they are using, using the same flow. Um, you're, you build this like very, uh, interwoven cross chain ecosystem where it's very possible to just pay gas where you are to do a transaction on another chain. And there's no, there's no downside to doing that. And, and is that where you feel like uh, Connects has the opportunity where you're effectively building, I think of, you know, um, electricity, right? If, if I if I had a current, if I wanted to connect, uh, what would be a better example? It's like you, the, the whole thinking of how you go from point A to point B is not something that the user will really ever be expected to do. But underneath the hood on the infrastructure layer, there's a whole bunch of wiring. It's like if I put in Google Maps that I want to go to the airport, like it's calculating all sorts of things that incorporate traffic and road closures and uh, what, what routes and time, all those things. And it's like, okay, hit go. And then I just follow the directions. That feels kind of like what you're describing. And then the the algorithm underneath the hood says, this is given all the factors, this is the best path to take. So just just do that. Approve sounds good, and then you just make the tra- transaction. Is that uh, is that just an inevitable thing, or are there serious design decisions that have to be made? Because in the case of the internet, it feels like yeah, we understand we all want to be on the same network because we all benefit from being able to clearly communicate with each other, and so let's just build that. And then the the internet protocols, TCP/IP, and everything else came around. Is that the direction things are, or is it more complicated in the blockchain world? Yeah. Um, so the the question of is it inevitable is always an interesting one because I think like uh, for a lot of these kinds of, it's like you could you could almost say like blockchains are an inevitable conclusion of where the of of what happened to the internet because like the, there's a sequence of events that started with the internet that ended up here, um, and uh, and it seems like the economic incentives have just pushed us in this direction. Um, now I don't, I don't know to what extent that's, that's the case, but, uh, I, I do think that in this case, like given the market conditions that exist today and barring any absolutely massive breakthrough innovation that happens that completely, basically something that is a 10 X innovation that allows us to go all the way back and say, Oh, actually our whole understanding of blockchains is just completely incorrect. Like, uh, everything that we have known about blockchains since the days of Bitcoin, uh, are is is trash and we need to throw it all out and because we now have a 10x improvement against that um a lot of people have claimed to have done that with certain layer ones a lot really? of people say that they have ways yeah i mean like that was like you know that's like the whole premise of iota for instance was like oh you know blockchains that the idea of having this like linked list which is like a, a block and then linked to another block and another block like that whole concept is not scalable instead let's have a dir- like a, a directed acyclic graph which is basically a more kind of complex mechanism for linking of transactions Mm. and by having that more complex mechanism you can create this more scalable system and i think what ended up happening was like yes in some cases that may be a little bit more scalable but then you trade off a lot of complexity you trade off a lot of other sorts of issues and the reality is any of those projects that have hit scale have actually run into the exact same problems that exist on ethereum or in many cases worse because of the complexity and everything just actually completely mm. breaks um and uh, and so i think it's it's like one of those things where it's like we haven't we have not yet come across something that is a 10x improvement for decentralized coordination than blockchains than existing blockchains um and the we are continuing to iterate on this model of existing blockchains and the rec- the direction that that model is going now is heading towards 
exactly what you talked about, which is this mechanism of there are many chains and there's routing between them. Um, and it's similar to the internet. And that's actually the analogy, the exact analogy that we draw for connects a lot of the time, because that is effectively what we're doing. We even the nodes in our network are literally called routers, um, because they, they relay packets between chains, um, in the same way that internet routers do. Um, now the, um, uh, uh, I guess the, the core kind of point there is like, it is inevitable so long as nothing comes and completely shakes our current un- understanding of things. Um, and, uh, and if that kind of disruptive innovation happens, of course, like most of, ev- most of everything everyone is doing in the space is now bunk and we need to go learn something completely new, which is pretty kind of cool, yeah. but also would be surprising. It seems like, it, it seems like if you, if you, if you take a step back and look at it from first principles, uh, it, it comes down to where is the information stored? And how is it transmitted, right? And like the internet was, hey, we're going to centralize this inside of computers that are going to be in your house and they're going to talk to other computers in other houses. And the information is stored on a chip in your computer in your house. And then it's like, hey, then we have servers. And it's like, well, that server is going to provide computational power that's dedicated in the local at some location nearby. And then it's in the cloud, which is just in a giant factory that Amazon or Google run. Now we, we say, rather than centralize that, let's have that be all over the place. And so all the information everywhere is stored everywhere. And that is yeah. only possible when computational power is really high, when it's really efficient to be able to, to run duplicate, effectively like redundant databases all over the place. And that that to me seems like that is not likely to, I, I don't see how you, what, what, el- what else could there possibly be? It's, I mean, quantum computers. There's the Solana thesis. Yeah. 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 Oh, the, so, there's so, like, it's stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. What's the story? So, so basically, like, oh yeah, sorry, uh, that might be a little bit late to on my end, but um, um, so the 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 you know it's it's you actually hit the nail on the head. It's kind of interesting because it's like blockchains and this kind of mechanism for um, uh, like effectively cloud computing, right? That's if, that's effectively what blockchains are doing is they're taking cloud computing, but instead of having it be in a warehouse, it's like now decentralized in the way that. Uh, traditional computing and traditional internet was decentralized. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and it's sort of, you, you hit the nail on the head with saying that, you know, that a lot of the reason for this is that, uh, our ability to compute things, computing power itself has accelerated quite a bit because of Moore's law and things like that. Um, and, uh, and so Solana's thesis is just that that is going to continue to happen. Um, and so, uh, they, that we should just, instead of trying to have this mechanism of scaling blockchains where we just fragment everything outwards, um, let's just bet on the fact that the hardware itself will just become 100x cheaper and better in, over the course of the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, which is, it's not a bad bet. I mean, I think, I think like, you know, I can understand why a lot of VCs like Solana because VCs love Moore's Law. Yeah, uh, this is like a, a thing that they all talk about, uh, where they're like, no, but more is live. Everything's going to get cheaper. And so therefore we need to make bets on everything getting cheaper, like all compute getting cheaper, which is, it's fair. It has worked so far. I don't, I mean, it's slowing down and I don't think it's going to work forever, but at the same time, like it's worked so far. And, and the thesis is that like, if, you know, if computers at, even at home computers get much, much, much better, the, the downsides of Solana, which are that it's really expensive and difficult to run. And so now, and needs, so because of that needs to be run in data centers, the downsides of that just disappear, right? Because you don't longer need data centers for those things. Um, now, of course, it's like Solana is making this bet on the future, um, on like where, what is the future of computing? Um, and, uh, and it's unclear like how that's going to play out, but it is an interesting bet for sure. 
Mm. Do you uh, subscribe? Do you think that that's more likely to be true than not? That the that the that efficiency and hardware and computational power is high enough, fast enough that Solana is successful. So, I do think. So I, I think that while more so, there, I, I have three thoughts around this, which are which are sort of like fragmented, and they they ultimately lead to a, an opinion, but they are kind of fragmented thoughts. The first thought is Moore's law uh, was a thing until relatively recently and like the rate at which we have been making progress in terms of like in terms of basically chip density has has decreased um and it's kind of tapered off um that's not to say that we might not make some breakthroughs in the future but we are going to start hitting like actual physical limits and those physical those physical limits are going to start going into the quantum realm at some point or another so we will hit a certain point where this becomes a problem um the second point around this is that that said i i always think it is a bad idea to bet against human innovation mm. um the pace of human innovation i i don't know about like it, it it might take 10 years it might take 20 years it might take 50 years do i think inevitably at some point we will get to the point where like computing and computing power density actually gets to the point where you could run solana as it stands now at home yeah probably i think that's that's very very highly highly likely actually <laughs> i think there's like uh you know there's a there's we're, we're building better and better computers every year um, but the last point that I have about this, and this is what leads me to say that I, this is the reason why, like, again, like I respect Solana's ecosystem. I actually think that a lot more people should respect Solana's ecosystem, especially in the easy ecosystem. Um, because I think that sometimes people turn blinders on and yeah, don't yeah. look at other things, which, which isn't good. Um, but I think the reason that I, I ideologically don't like Solana or, or don't, don't believe it to be the right solution is because, um, I think the thing that they're missing is uh, as part of their calculus and as part of their bet is the social and uh, and sort of like uh, sociological and economic aspect of, of making this bet on the future, which is when you wait to decentralize a lot, when you, when you don't have a credible, really, really credible path, and when you wait for a long time to decentralize, uh, power ends up kind of sequestering into the hands of a select few groups of people. And then it's over time, the incentives dictate that those people are not going to give that power up. Mm. Um, and I think that that means that, you know, even if Solana's thesis ends up being right, I think it's highly, highly unlikely that they actually build a truly decentralized ecosystem. Um, I think it will, even if you end up being able to run this stuff at home, uh, you will likely end up in a world where Solana will, Solana's control will still re- remain in the hands of like a relatively smaller set of operators or data providers. How would that how would that work in uh, in the transition of death? So, like that, that's obviously a big part of governments is how voting and change of control happens. If the lead, if that is the case, where Solana and, and take Solana for example, by it could be many other protocols and layer ones. That how does that happen? Where where is there a set process, or is that still we're figuring that out? Like how you know somebody gets old, they say I don't want to do this anymore, or they die. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's difficult to tell because these are new systems, but at the same time, I think it's always just going to come down to like economic incentives, right? So it's like, you don't want to create blockchain old money. (laughs) That's not a good thing. Um, and and when we get to that point, it's going to be kind of a problem, right? Like, you know, you have, you have today, you have a, you know, railroad company old money, 
people who are like parts of people who, who are families that have descended from, you know, some of the original families that built the original railroad corporations. And they have an absurd, ludicrous amount of wealth. Um, and, and, you know, they have been able to use that position of having a ludicrous amount of wealth to generate even more ludicrous right. amounts of wealth right. um, because of the way that the world works at the moment. Uh, I think that that is the concern that I have. It's like, you know, even if the, the people who are in charge or the people who actually control that power die out, um, I think ultimately they will beget that to families, to corporations, to a certain select, like select groups of people. Um, and like, it might, it might still be a larger group of people, but the, the, the relative ratio of that number of people versus the rest of the population will be quite small. Um, similar to kind of, again, the, the railroad and other kinds of like historic wealth, uh, in, in uh, the U.S. and the rest of the world today. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there was a, this, this video and book has been stuck in my head for so long and it seems to mimic a lot of the patterns that you're talking about. The Ray Dalio's, uh, world changing order. Have you seen this or read any of the book? I haven't. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's basically, for a long time, I thought that there was sort of complete randomness at the highest level of economics in the world. And he paints this picture that is much different and very compelling, which is that there's this similar to, you know, Arjun is born, he's, he grows up as a child, he grows into adolescence, you have your adulthood, you get old, you kind of get slow, creole, br- brittle, and then you die. And, and that, that pattern happens on a societal level. So as the society is very, young and ambitious and hardworking. Uh, there's, there's a lot, everyone is roughly equal in wealth, roughly equal in many different measures. They're all working hard. They're contributing. Uh, things get better. You know, they're, they're, as, as high work, uh, and hard situations compound, then you have innovations and technologies and high education, great military firm organization of governments. And as that happens, people benefit from that. And they say, life is good. Let's take it, let's take it back a little bit. Let's slow down. We're less productive. We get fat. We drink our champagnes and the compounding wealth starts to accumulate. So it's like, as I have more wealth, the cycle, the cycle gets more condensed. And this is, this is true in the Dutch empire, the British empire, the American empire, and empires before us where we get overextended. We have, you know, 75 military bases all over the country or many, many different countries. And then that, that history that says, Hey, we've been successful in the past. We're just more, we're more likely to believe that we're successful in the future. That starts to erode. And then all of a sudden you have this, Mm -hmm. uh, high political agitation situation and uncertainty where wealth distribution is really high economic output. It starts to slow. And then there's a increasing, uh, world empire that's chasing it. And right now the United States and China are pretty close in GDP, China with a massive population and growing much faster. And he seems, I mean, from an American perspective, I'm like, oh, that kind of sucks. But then you realize that's just the way it is. That's just, that's just like learning. I'm going to die one day. And so it's not, the attitude has shifted for me, which has like been, oh, fuck, you know, I don't want that to happen to my country to, hey, maybe there's another perspective. Maybe it's like, this decentralization uh, of of crypto and organizations and the economy and the interworking of the economy across the world maybe that's the thing that's going to su- supersede the American Empire and um, I don't know I've, I've just been thinking about that because it seems to parallel so many other things like as power condenses it gets more fragile to an overthrow of the whole system um, yeah. 
So I actually, now that you've described it, I have actually heard about this book. Um, is it, was it, is it a book? It's a book and a YouTube video about 45 minutes long. Okay. Okay, cool. I think I've heard about, I have heard about the book and I've heard, heard about this described to, and I, I do, I completely agree. It's a really fascinating idea. And like, um, it, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that like, this is sort of just like the life cycle of empires. And it doesn't really matter what those empires are, whether they're like, you know, they've been like historic, you know, actual physical empires to being economic empires, like in the modern day, um, or even companies, right? Like yeah. you're seeing this exact life cycle play out for so many corporations today. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, arguably Facebook is in the, in, in the midst of, of in this attempting to avoid this fate right now. Yeah. Um, and I think, so, I- yeah, I think, um, I think it's kind of interesting um yeah yeah sorry go ahead i was just gonna say i think facebook's shift to meta is almost a attempt to create a second life where they're like hey maybe if we completely transition i mean you're effectively pivoting their whole business model uh, which is just nuts but it it, it seems like that's their attempt because this is not even just about empires It's, it's really about power any any sort of centralization of conscious power uh goes through this like climb it up you're at the peak you fit, you get cush, you enjoy it. And then there's another rise in power. Yeah. I think that, I mean, the fact that Facebook is pivoting everything into meta and it's not even, I mean, it's not even like that market really exists yet. Like that, that suggests a level of desperation that is greater than I think, than what I really expected that exists there. Um, and, and it's, it's, I mean, it's clear that they think that they understand the situation that they're in. Um, and it's astounding that they're, right, that they were willing to like pivot that hard into something Dude. that, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> I know, man, I remember at, crazy as a startup founder, it's like the, the, like we, my last company, we raised about 23 million and we had a good business, 60 employees and we had to pivot. And I remember like losing sleep multiple nights, feeling like pivoting at this stage. How could we do that? And now I'm like, I'm such a little bitch that was, you know, they're a trillion dollar company and they can pivot. Um, uh, so, yeah, well, I mean, well, it remains to be seen whether it's like it could, it's like, you know, it's like, this is, this is a Hail Mary. So it can either go, it can either like save the entire organization, which again, I like, now that we have this decentralized option, if we didn't have this decentralized option, I think it could save the entire organization. But because we have this decentralized option, I think, uh, there is a legitimate contender against this, which is that people will just not want to pay the 45% meta marketplace fee or whatever it is. Super ridiculous. Um, but I mean, it's like, it's, this is either going to be like a, a, a savior moment or death throes. Yeah. Right? This is either like, just this is either where it falls apart or like where it somehow comes out of the ashes. Yeah. How, how do you see the, uh, the growth of VR in particular? It, it seems like that's the real, bet here is the ready player one you you put it on all the haptic sensors are there you and i instead of looking at a screen we're like indistinguishable from being in the same room even though we're in different countries is that something that you've thought about or can see that vision clearly or are you more skeptical you know i i used to be like pretty skeptical that like i was just like so I think this is something that I was always like, yeah, okay, like we'll be able to have use cases for VR and this is going to be like a like an important thing. But I was always really skeptical that it would be something that people would spend a lot of time doing because I was like, people would do it for like purpose-built reasons. You might have like games and experiences like, you know, in 
the reason that I'm skeptical was just like, there's just so many other ways that people have of interacting with the world right now and so many other interesting things that people are doing. Um, that said, I recently got an Oculus, um, Oculus Quest and I have to say like, like, I mean, it is like, it's really good. <laughs> it is, it is now at the, the point where it, now I understand why Facebook wants to double down on this because I think if they do it correctly, which I really don't think they will, but if they do it correctly, the Oculus Quest has the, has the, it's, it's sort of at the point where it's like iPhone moment where like <clears throat> it will become a thing that people will just start like purchase. There'll, there'll be this one thing that people will start getting it for. And then after that, it will, uh, people will start building more and more things on top of it as a platform. And then it'll just like skyrocket mm-hmm. because like even, I mean, the quest is like a, what, like a $300 device, $300. $400 device, something like that. Um, and like, it's like fully integrated. So there's like headphones, um, there's cameras built into it. So you can actually like, like you draw out a boundary that you're in. And then if you exceed that boundary, it automatically switches to showing you the real world so that you don't actually like bump into things. Um, and you can draw custom boundaries. So like you basically could use your room space however you want. Um, and then that gets ported with you to the, into like whatever you're doing. And you can actually do even more than that. So like they're continuously adding some really interesting stuff. You can bring your chair into VR. You basically just scan your chair with your thing and you just put it in. You can bring your keyboard and your laptop in. You can actually set up a work desk. You could with like many virtual screens, um, you know, and like it's, it's actually like surprisingly really good. Um, now the one thing that I think is really not great about it is that it's still super Facebooky. Like it's still like really clearly a closed environment. Mm. And, you know, I think that they're, what they're trying to do is do the same thing that Apple did in the early days of the iPhone, where it was like very highly curated, very like highly sort of let's make this the best kind of like this niche experience and, and, and stuff like that. But I actually think that that's a problem because the world has moved past that. Like we, we've, I think we've gotten to the point now where people, like, if you want this to be a platform that people build on top of, what they should just do is, like, charge for the device. That's fine. Understandable. But, you know, make the marketplace open. Um, have, like, content, basic content creation, stuff like that. But make the marketplace open. Don't, like, have it be only Facebook applications. Um, make uh, make it so that other browsers exist. Don't use only Facebook's shitty browser. Like, obviously, they're collecting your private data. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, use, uh, let, let people come and like build their own experiences in VR and experiment with it because that's what needs to happen first before you try to monetize. Don't start charging people 50% right now before we even know what we people even know what they're doing. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's like at this stage, everything is a POC in, in VR. You should treat it as such. Yeah. Well, what's the pushback? Cause everything you said seems like the, the almost obvious playbook, which is, allow external app developers i mean do you think they're just feeling the pressures of generating revenue and that why that's why they have where they want to establish that that rate up front so people aren't you know up in arms when they do come out with a transaction fee yeah have you heard of somebody named simon wardley no i don't think so so um simon wardley is this like uh business person and thinker who has spent a lot of time analyzing the ways that like company basically like part, part like analyzing the way that like innovation happens and uh, and businesses kind of like uh grow and it's, it's sort of similar to the empire concept we were talking about like how how innovation goes from like starting and then businesses get created around it those businesses grow to be monopolies and then how they like sort of die out in the future at some point and he 
um, one of the things that he's pioneered is this idea of, of wordly mapping, which is where you, you try to map out the dependencies for your organization. Um, this is like a really great strategic thinking tool where you map out the dependencies for your organization, uh, to figure out what, what, like, what assumptions are you making about the market and about like the things that you need in the market and versus where those things are in terms of their innovation and development lifecycle. And one of the things that he posits is like, Everything, every kind of innovation goes through like uh, this phase, and uh, along this timeline, you kind of like start on one side, and on one side there is, um, you know, you have the the kind of like inception moment of this is this is like a totally new POC thing, um, and uh, and like, uh, and then you get to the point where it's like you know the like kind of following the the like uh, crossing the chasm that you get to kind of like the early majority stage where it starts to become productized. Um, and then you get to this like later majority stage where it's now like scaled and becomes like large scale products and it's starting to become commoditized. And then over time, by the time you kind of get to like the tail end of things, things effectively become utilities, right? The, you, you start achieving race to the bottom situations on pricing and things like that. So like electricity obviously is in, in the utility category, but things like the inter- like internet access and stuff like that is getting to that point where, where like it's just, it's like perfect pricing amongst different competitors. And it's not like there's anything one can do better over the other. Mm. Um, and what he talks about is that like everything follows this life cycle and the, the kind of ethos of open source and the, the kind of benefit of open source. And the reason that open source exists is it, is it sort of pushes things all along that life cycle a lot further until they get to that utility section. And as a company, as a, especially as a large company that like builds a product when it's really innovative, you start to move along this, this path. And eventually you get to the point where you're like, okay. The thing that I'm doing, the thing that is my primary business driver is now effectively is going to become a utility soon. And when that happens, I no longer have a business. So either there's like two options. Either you continue trying to innovate, you basically completely reinvent yourself, um, or you try to uh, do what all traditional companies do, which is... Uh, you know, IP license the shit out of everything, go after, like aggressively start suing people, like closed source development, like try to, you know, enforce, like build regulatory systems around what you're doing. Like, the, you know, the, take like the visa model, right? It's like t- try to build a bunch of regulatory systems around what you're doing to like maintain that monopoly for as long as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, it will head in that, in that direction. And I think visa is like a quintessential example of like, you can hold on to that power for a really, really, really long time. And then one day someone is just going to come in and buy the blockchains and like, you know, that this thing is going to disrupt you one way or another. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, like people will disrupt the concept of regulations to get around you. Uh, innovation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like, it's almost like technology. If you just abstract what technology is, it's, it's all these things together. It's like whether I'm trying to book a hotel for the night, I'm trying to send an email, I'm trying to get a car, I'm trying to buy my he- headphone technology. Like even these these Bose headphones we're wearing, I'm sure one day it's like the same value of sound cancellation and music production will be invisible. It'll be, it'll be it won't even be there, and then it'll be effectively free. Right, and maybe it'll be digital, yeah. so we won't even there's no physical representation of it in the first place. So that that it's like whatever comes into being in the first place has to eventually have a path towards obsolescence right exactly and i think that's and that's the thing is like that's the incentives of large-scale corporation i think when you're a smaller company and you have you as a as an innovator as a founder as a ceo as as basically a team that is that is innovating when you still have kind of control over a company you're able to say okay you know what like this is going to die at some point so like screw it, we will throw that out, we'll build new innovative things. But when you're a large company, especially a large publicly traded company, 
that's not really what your investors want to hear, right? Like you are supposed, you're trying to show the returns. And so I think there's like a conservative bias that sort of exists in a, in a large company because you have such a large group of stakeholders now who care about what you're doing. And because you have the conservative bias, everybody's just like, no, let's find ways to monetize this as fast as possible, as much as possible, because we can't afford to have, you know, uh, a couple of quarters of, of negative revenue or a couple of quarters of like less revenue, because that's just not the way that the incentives work around stocks, right? Like if, if that happens, uh, Facebook's stock crashes, uh, people lose faith in the product. A lot of people pull their money out of, uh, out of Facebook. And then now there's like a huge, and like, and then, and then, you know, you'll have like the, uh, like a shareholders meeting and then they'll just fire Zuckerberg. So it's like, you know, it's like, I'm sure Mark is in a position where it's like, even if you, and this is the shitty thing. It's like, I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg is a good person or not. Uh, it doesn't really matter ultimately because the reality is the incentives compel him, right? If he says no, this is uh, this has happened in so many companies. And I mean, I'm sure this is, you know, uh, this this is eventually the case with every company, even companies like Google, where they retain this awesome, like, let's do the best we can kind of culture and like retain control for a very long period of time. It's like at some point, people retire, at some point, people are forced out. And, uh, and like, then you are replaced by somebody else who is more likely to say yes. Hmm. And like, if Mark says no, what's going to happen? They're just going to fire him, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like the, there's no benefit to saying him saying no, it's just, he'll get fired. And then somebody else will get put in his position who will have lower ethical capacity uh, or will like be more willing to make compromises. Yeah, yeah. And do you view that as the, do you think of it as the structure of the company itself? So when it comes to incentives of the leadership, it's really about who who's able to put pressure meaning who has a, a voting share in the direction of this company and the way that companies are generally structured in the, in, in our world is that there's individual share owners. So a company is split into maybe 10 million different parts and then there can be, you know, anywhere up to 10 million different owners. And then you could always create more shares and create more dilution. So there's some finite uh, number of shareholders, but those aren't the decision makers. It's the board of directors, which has an obligation to the people who own the shares. And so like Twitter was acquired. The reason why the board uh, agreed to Elon's acquisition offer was that they viewed the acquisition offer to be in the best financial interests of the shareholders. And oh, some of the shareholders of has to be the majority, some of the shareholders, right? Right. M most of the shareholders. So, so it's like, usually with most of these companies, uh, only a very small, relatively small percentage of the shares are actually owned by like public, public, right? Like the majority of the shares will be held by like a smaller subset of um, combination of like people, uh, like like maybe founders um, and then like PE funds, uh, other kinds of like institutional like in investors and things like that that are dictating where this goes. So like for those people, uh, this was in their best interest. Mm -hmm. um, Ultimately, if you own, you know, 100 shares of Twitter, your your voice doesn't matter at all. Yeah, if you want it to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not even going to be in that meeting. Yeah, and that's that's that's. I mean, to think about it in another way it would be, if that person who owns 100 dollars shares has anything other than a proportional voting right to what their share is, then how, how would that 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 has to be the way it is? You know, I, I can't buy 100 dollars of Twitter and have some dominant share. So it, it seems very parallel to the way voting works and can work yeah, governance, yeah. on yeah, governance on chain, which is like, well, your voting yeah. permissions is permissible is like relative to how much ownership you have. And so the concern is 
both sides, the spectrum is like, okay, when there's, when there's no centralization, when the largest owner has, you know, 0.2% and it's just like too many people have equal voting rights. The same thing in democracy. If it was direct democracy, everyone in the country is voting on every issue federally. It's kind of like, it's an enormous amount of weight that, that individuals have to all do their research and, and come up with the right answer. So you, you have electorates or in the case of a board, they represent you. It seems like that's, um, like what system is better than that? Do you, do you see that incentive system that Facebook is in and the market is in as somehow being flawed systemically and that blockchain can introduce a new governance evolution or are you more skeptical of that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a really good question. Um, so I think I, there's there's two different questions here, right? One is, um, is the type of system that exists around, you know, private and public corporations right now where, uh, you know, especially with investors and outside investors where uh, everything is, is traded on some revenue multiple against the future and tech companies are traded against a very high revenue multiple uh, because they're, the assumption for everybody is that they're going to be growing a lot all the time. Um, uh, and, uh, is that, is that a negative thing for the world? Uh, I think, yes. Um, I think the reason that that exists, and there's a bunch of different reasons that that exists. I think a big part of it is that, um, uh, is the way that people think about, um, investment, uh, and the way that basically the way that the market around investments has, has changed in over the course of the last 20, 30 years. Uh, to go from let's fix, like, let's, like, basically the internet has dramatically accelerated the, our ability to build highly, highly scalable businesses and then turn those highly scalable businesses into monopolies that then also go and monopolize other industries. And I think a lot of people have rec- recognized that and realized that you can start trading a lot of these companies at some future valuation that is actually much, much higher than present valuation because uh you have the belief that it will get to that there at that point and it's then it's sort of self-fulfilling because it's like as the company you are now incentivized to go there um and the reason that we're able to do this is because we also have been for the last 20 years in actually almost now the last 80 years in a very highly inflationary economy um and because of that it's very very cheap for us to go and get cash from places and go put it into really really big bets like this because the cost of holding cash yourself is extremely high. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's much, much smarter to go make incredibly crazy, stupid bets on things. Um, and for as an as a economy, we are incentivized to continue making crazy, stupid bets on things. We're incentivized to continue manufacturing things, basically living lives of excess, living these lives where, again, empires, right? We're, we're in an economy where we are incentivized to go spend as much money as possible and produce as many consumer goods as possible um, because we want to keep jobs and we want to keep jobs so that way we can, again, like, you know, produce more. And then it's like this sort of like self-referential system. And everybody's deathly afraid of, you know, deflationary economies because everybody's terrified that in a deflationary economy, everything contracts. And some people bring up Japan as an example and people lose their jobs and stuff. But the, there are benefits to that too, right? The benefit is in a deflationary economy, you're not incentivized to do this. You're incentivized to instead uh, hold assets. Uh, you're incentivized to hold US dollars because this this asset that you're holding, this, the normal currency is inflating against or is, is increasing in price against everything else. Mm-hmm. So 
you then everybody then wants to not spend a lot of money and instead they want to uh uh save money they want to not buy tons and tons of different goods they want to only buy a few high quality goods that they care about uh they want to not go and pollute the atmosphere <laughs> they want to instead go and uh not utilize resources as best as they possibly can because those resources uh because spending money on those resources now is a lot more expensive than spending money on those resources in the future mm-hmm. um so you know we we sort of can tie a lot of these things to each other around our society which is a little bit scary and a little bit unfortunate you know it almost um, seems how does this tie to sorry oh you go ahead finish your point there or yeah it seems like yeah no, no 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 go ahead yeah. uh it i was gonna switch switch gears a little bit <clears throat> dows but yeah go ahead uh it's it, I want to talk about dials in a minute if you have time to continue. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know it's late, late where you are. Um, it's totally fine. It seems to me like, like when we talk about Facebook structure and stock structure and the markets and board of directors and ownership, and then parallel that into the blockchain world, it's not that dissimilar. Like we're going to largely replicate pr- probably a lot of the structure to that. The the primary difference is the the other side of the embroidery is like, w- what's the mechanism? What's the currency used to um, move, to keep track, right? Money is information that's stored on a scorecard. And when a, a, gr- a government, which is a, a body of people that we give power to print as much money as they want and control interest rates, that that creates a system that, uh, number one, it's not predictable. So we don't know, like tomorrow, there could be an additional $10 trillion printed, and that changes everything. So that you pay a price for that uh, instability or lack of predictableness in the future. Yep. And then, then it also... I mean, it could be inflationary or deflationary, depending on what the the Fed does. But that seems like a that seems like to me it's it's a it's a thing that you couldn't not do. You know, every every empire previous to American Empire or just twenty twenty two, really, when Bitcoin came around, you you had to have a central way of printing money to keep track of effectively in reality in the world that we live in. If you're if you're if you're using money. Uh, the money traditionally is tied to a, an asset that is limited. <clears throat> so gold, you know, was the primary one because gold is difficult to mine, and and in the rate at which gold is mined is erratic, but it's largely not explosive. Like I can't, you know, just go tomorrow and decide to mine gold. It's definitely a lot more stable than yeah, the- yeah, they're definitely a lot more stable. And so now it's it seems to me like the the innovation potential is on the other side where it's like we have the ability to just systematically program mathematically the rate at which currency is circulated um there's flaw i mean i don't know how big a concern you have for things like uh people dying that have you know 10 million dollars in bitcoin wallets and how does that ever get accounted for and eventually like fast forward 200 years and how does money you know flush down Um, generations so i think yeah. Um, so I guess like, uh, so first, first off, I'd like to say for, for things like DAOs and stuff, like, um, this is actually one of my biggest fears about this space that like, I really don't want to end up recreating the existing system. And we are definitely like, I, I, I really, I mean, we are issuing a token and we are going to have a token based DAO as well, uh, where the token does a lot of other things too, but we're going to have a token based out initially. Um, that said, I am, I am actually personally really against coin voting. I think it's, it's, objectively extremely bad for the world. 
um, because you're basically creating the exact same like plutocratic mechanisms that exist today with corporations and they have the exact same incentives. So like the ultimate outcome of this is, is going to look exactly the same as something like Facebook, where you're going to, you might have this decentralized ecosystem. Um, but at the same time, you have two things that are, that are leading us to this very unfortunate outcome. The first is people are buying and selling your, you know, like, while, you know, this is not necessarily what we want all the time, and this is not necessarily what, like, what, how we want the economics of the system to work, a lot of the time, the reason that people are buying and selling your asset is speculation, right? They're buying and selling your asset because they think it's going to be worth a lot more in the future. And they might even be pricing your asset as a multiple, at a multiple against what it's, what it should be worth right now, because they think it's going to be worth that amount in like two or three years. And they're willing to hold it, uh, for that time where they expect it'll actually just compound from there. Um, now the, so that's that's like no different than the way that people are thinking about technology stocks. And that's that's a problem because of course there is a lot of importance in having financial upside for stakeholders in these ecosystems, right? That's how adoption happens. That's how you have the like ponsonomics of things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and that's why they have become so so important and valuable. And that's that's it's argued like it's also helped a lot of people. Right? A lot of people have gained wealth that wouldn't have gained it otherwise. On the other hand, I, I think like there has to be some sort of limit. You can't have like, you can't, the incentive, if you have an asset that where everybody keeps saying, oh, let's just keep pumping the asset, the price of this higher and higher and higher. And then let's just put the expectations on the product, on the project to like deliver to this level. Mm-hmm. What you're basically going to do is create like a king of the hill of all the protocols where eventually the goal, the idea is you just end up with one monopolistic protocol that does everything. Um, and that will kill everything else out. Mm. And like, that's just bad. That's, that's not how the world should work at all. Then you're just centralized everything all over again. And it's a huge problem. And, and then when, once you get to that point, or once you get to the point where it's no longer feasible, the incentives are going to be for, you know, DAO vote voters are going to start voting for, oh, let's start attra- extracting value from this platform, right? Let's like have Uniswap charge higher fees and give it to the, the stakeholders, like the, the DAO holders and things like that. Um, token holders, sorry. The other flip side of this is, is, well, if you don't have that incentive, then what, what incentive is there to actually purchase and hold these assets and utilize these assets, right? Like you might have some utility associated with it. Um, and I think that that's really important. And that's why I think things like, you know, the economic security of Ethereum and things like that are actually like quite important. But, you know, barring that, what what rationale is there? Um, and this is, this is the concern that I have for a lot of the DAO tokens that like for a staking asset, the utility is that you need to actually stake it because that is required to provide economic security mm. for a DAO token at the moment that doesn't exist. There's really no reason to like hold it other than the speculative value of it increasing in the future. And, uh, you know, the governance aspect of it is really only ever going to be used to, uh, manifest the potential value that you want to see in the future that you're speculating on, right? Mm-hmm. That's the goal of it. So, uh, unless there's some secondary rationale to hold it and hold this asset, it's just never going to be used for anything else. Um, and I, I don't really have a solution to that. Yeah, it, it, it uh, almost seems to me, you know, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a way for people to give money to the project, right? It's like otherwise, what would you do, right? You'd say, yeah. Otherwise, you have to go through, you know, all the red tape of like creating a company and raising money and getting all these people to certify their credit investors and wired into your bank account. It's like, you could do that. I mean, you could consider that, right? You could say, okay, Connex is going to raise a traditional, we're going to be different. We're just going to raise a traditional venture round and, you know, crowdfund it. Now we have the 
uh, crowdfunding rules, at least in the US where you can do that. It, it's not, it, it just, yeah. it's, it's the same mechanics, right? Ultimately, maybe that's all it is. Well, and the thing is, we did we did do all of that too, right? We we ha- you know did traditional fundraises. We've raised from traditional VCs as well. The reason that we issuing a token is because like my goal is for Connects to become public infrastructure, right? I don't I don't Connects is not a corporation. It's not Connects Labs. It's not you know like Connects Labs the core team that's working on it, and and we'll probably be like rebranding to something else and bring on more implementation teams and things like that because it shouldn't be controlled by one person. It shouldn't be developed by one person, uh, right? This is a fundamental cornerstone of the internet. It's going to be it's it needs to be credibly neutral. It needs to be built by a large group of people all over the world that care about taking this forward for the next hundred years. Um, and like, that's why I don't want it to be a corporation. That's why I don't want it to be like a, you know, just a, 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 a share based thing. Even if it becomes a publicly traded company, that's still objectively bad because if the internet was a publicly traded company, it would be super bad for the world. Uh, mm. um, at the same time, I think like at the moment we don't have any mechanism any better mechanism out there in the world right now to potentially create public goods than tokens. Um, because to create an incentivized public goods than tokens. Um, I think the, the question really just comes down to what mechanisms are you able to use to, to ensure that the economics of your system actually drive you towards it being a public good rather than eventually becoming something that people want to exploit or are, are capable of exploiting because they can exercise plutocratic control over it. And I think like the best kind of example of that um, uh, is, is Ethereum itself, where it's like, you know, Ethereum, you know, it's definitely has plutocratic control. There are always going to be centralizing factors. And that's always something that you have to be conscious of and stay ahead of. Um, you know, it's like a, a great example of this is, is like the Lido stuff that's happening. Lido is an incredible project. And I, like, I really, really like the project. We, we, but like, obviously, one of the big concerns is that a lot of the Ethereum stake, uh, ETH2 stake is going, is now getting centralized under Lido because it's just, a, it's such an incredible economic flywheel. It is it's a fantastic product. And it's like such a huge innovation against what exists today that like, it's starting to monopolize. Um, and so figuring out like, okay, well, how do we, you know, embrace these kinds of things, but also make sure that we keep things decentralized is, is, is a big open question. Well, what I like about this ecosystem and the reason that I actually, you know, the reason that I, I'm not in a position right now where I'm like, oh, well, it's great. We're just going to be recreating the existing system is that there is one fundamental thing that is different between what we've tried in the past and what exists now. And that fundamental thing that is different is that it is now possible for us to build these kinds of coordination mechanisms without needing to build large institutions. Mm. Um, my thesis is that anytime you have a large institution, large institutions get driven by incentives uh, because you just are averaging the the like opinions of everybody in this institution, and then it, it, the really the average of all those op- opinions just becomes its incentives. And uh, and so you you know that's why you have. You know, you can have like plenty, you know, every person that is working in governments can want to do the right thing, but that government can still be acting in a really bad way. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the reason for that is just differing incentives. It just pulls people in different directions. And then the average of all that comes out to be something that's shitty for individual people. Um, I think the the key innovation of the space is that we, for the first time ever, we have the ability to create coordination mechanisms that happen peer to peer between individuals and that means that while it's true that we may end up recreating 
the same system. It's possible for us to recreate the same system. I think the other thing that we could also do is potentially innovate past it. Because in the past, there was no way to innovate on governance. There was no way to innovate on economics. It was just, it was just too hard. It was very unscalable. Like you, when you get to the point where you're running, like, the, where do you see governance? It's like the governance of a country. You can't have the U.S. government. There's no way for the U.S. government to like tomorrow drop everything and say, okay, you know what? We're going to, we're going to try futarchy as a new government. Yeah, we can barely vote. Democracy we, we barely believe that we exactly. all cast like, one vote. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Exactly. It's like you're averaging too many opinions. You're averaging too much. There's just too much going on. It's just too, it's like just scales too large to do that. So I think, I think that's the, that is what I'm hoping happens is that in the process of, a lot of people talk about how like, uh, like crypto is speed running finance and economics and governance and game theory. And I think we are, we are absolutely speed running it. Um, we're making all the same mistakes that people have made in the past. Sometimes I wish that we actually looked a little bit more into what's happened in the past to like not make those mistakes. But one thing that I am seeing that makes me a little bit hopeful is like while we're making those mistakes, we are moving past them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're moving past them a lot quicker than his- historically we've moved past them, which has historically been like hundreds of years. Um, and that that makes me optimistic because at a certain point, we're going to catch up to where we are. Yeah. And then we're going to start breaking new ground. And that's where things are going to get really, really interesting because we're going to be like, finding entirely new ways to think about these systems, entirely new ways to deal with governance. And in that, my hope is by running these experiments in that we find something that actually works for human coordination, Mm. which would be fantastic. I mean, it's been, we've been trying to figure out how to accurately govern things since ancient, I mean, our our earliest recorded instances are in ancient Greece. I mean, (laughs) my my reaction to that uh, intuitively is that when you, when you say, we're looking for more efficient ways of governing ourselves. What you're saying is that we want to make the best decisions about the future as possible. And that means not only the best decisions for humans collectively as a species, but also other life on the planet and, and the planet as a whole and, and other life elsewhere. And we want to not have, there's a balance between like, do you average all the, the benefits to society to each person like if, if everyone if 99 percent of people in society were to have a better quality of life in some way but then you had to like torture and kill one percent like wh- where's the where's the trade-off of that like you know and 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 it's ultimately a i think it's a game that you can't win i think it's a game that like unless you had god on the board of directors just to tell you what the answer is which would make the game not worth playing in the first place like the whole existence of life is game theory. It's like, you. there's no winning game theory. There's no like, oh, I figured it out. What would you do? It's like, you beat the game. What do you do when you beat the game? You turn the game off. You're done playing the video game. It's like, yeah. so I I don't know. I tend to think that there's always going to be times of like, oh, this is amazing. We figured it out. We, we struck gold, right? Like crypto is kind of in that phase now and has been, and I think will continue to be for a few years. And then it'll be like, oh, this sucks. This is This is really bad. And then we're going to be like, oh, wait, wait, but wait, I got an idea. And then it like morphs and shifts into a new direction. Yeah, here's a new thing. Because I think like, what is it, you know, even a public good, when you say a public good, I, I think you mean one of two things. And tell me if you can elaborate on it. But you mean either that it's uh, that it's just become something of the past that's useful, like HTTP, some protocol on the internet. It's not really changing. It's useful. It's a public good. It's great exists like telephone poles or telephone wires. It's like, we're not changing them. Or 
it means something like um, something that's living and breathing and growing and adding value continuously. And if it's of the latter, then it has to make decisions about which way to go, where to deploy resources. Um, and if it makes it makes decisions, then you're caught up in the same game as as every other group of human beings working on something. Right. Right. So when I when I say public good, I mean um, when I say public good, I mean something that is part of the commons. Um, it is something where the net utility that gets distributed to every person that is interacting with the system. Um, it's like equal, equally accessible to all, and the net utility uh, that gets distributed to everybody interacting within the system is uh, uh, is uh, the cost of that is also borne by everybody. So it's not it's not like um, it's not like exploitative where like a certain per- per set, subset of people is paying the cost for a larger group of people benefit be- benefiting, or a situation where a large group of people are paying the cost and uh, and a small group of people are benefiting. Um, and so examples of public goods, I mean, there's, of course, like a lot of things that people think of when they think of public goods, like roads and bridges. Um, but what I'm particularly interested in is, is like, again, like, I think institutions are historically uh, throughout human history have been a problem. And, and so what I'm in, interested in is, is building public goods that are not controlled by corporations and that are not controlled by governments. Mm. Um, and I think the best example that we have of this today is the Internet. Um, I think the internet would, would, uh, governments have wanted the internet to exist if it was created today? No, absolutely not. Right. Because it, it stands for, uh, a push towards an opening of information and an opening of, of, uh, of, of like coordination that, that is fundamentally antithetical to the incentives of a single, any single organization, because any single organization benefits more from controlling information. Um, Again, wordly mapping, mm. right? You benefit from this, like, non, basically not letting these things become utilities. Mm. But at the same time, like, when you create these kind of, like, the internet itself, obviously there's, there's negative things that have come out of it. Of course, there are so many negative things that have come out of it. But on the whole, it has massively improved human life, massively. And a big part of the reason why that's happened is, is that it's been a net equalizing force, right? You, the, no matter how much money you have, the internet doesn't confer any benefits to you specifically as an individual, mm-hmm. right? Like you may be able to do more things on it and you may be able to buy more things on it, but like the internet doesn't give a shit about who you are. It doesn't care about where you are. Um, you know, like people who are living in Southeast Asia, right? Where there's like, you know, 80 plus percent like uh, smartphone penetration um, and are using internet on their smartphones every day are using are like accessing this ecosystem and this world and benefiting from it uh, to the same extent as people anywhere else. And in fact, I would say almost even more so because in many cases, they're not, they wouldn't have had access, a lot of people wouldn't have had access to those resources otherwise. Mm. Um, So it's like, we've seen this like global shift in the world towards, you know, democracy towards like freedom of speech towards like better human rights and all of it has been driven like like better more egalitarian governments right like the arab spring happened because of the internet like what is happening in ukraine and russia right now is happening because of the internet everything that happened in hong kong and china, with like china had, like the fact that we even know that that happened is because of the internet mm. um like you know uh, it, it's like it's this like enormously powerful tool for human beings to to learn more about the world in a fair way um 
And I want to create more of that. I think there, I think there are a lot of other things that should be fundamental human rights and it shouldn't matter. You know, like you should be able to hedge against the fact that your government may elect a dictator. Mm. And you should be able to help, you know, it's like there are, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not American, even though I have an American accent. Um, I grew up in, uh, in the, in the Middle East. I grew up like I'm Indian citizen. I have, you know, been all over the world. I have had friends from all over the world. And I think that's helped me get this perspective of like, even in countries that seem really fine, things change politically. Like they, and when they change politically, like you can suddenly get completely fucked. Like you're, you know, like, you have so many countries in the world that used to be like free open societies that just ended up through a string of like bad situations ended up like getting totally fucked. And now, now they are extremely repressed economies, extremely repressed socially. They don't have access to the same kinds of rights that other people do, but they still have access to the internet. (laughs) And like, I think there is a, there is something fundamentally good about elevating the human experience by making sure that people have access to some inalienable rights yeah um in in today's day and age (laughs) yeah yeah when you when you i want to tell me if you disagree with my definition of the words that you're using so when i think of the word internet and i think of the word government i think you mean just uh opposite ends of the spectrum of power so the internet represents a completely uh, equal access of power. And by power, I just mean connection to each other. Because the internet's not a thing. It's not like we can go to this place. The internet only exists in reference to what's not the internet, which is no computers and no no ability to connect. So you and I were like on the internet, but I'm just in my chair in my room looking at this screen. Yeah. So the internet is just the, it's like, it's like, like your example earlier, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the, agreement to run information through lines just like a road you know like if roads exist that that's a that's a network of roads you can call it like a car net right like the car net exists i love the car net i can go down a grocery store we talk about how great the car net is (laughs) but it's like it's really just a pathway of information and uh and i think if if what you're saying about connects happens that would mean that the there's like a, the connects, can, can, uh, am I saying this right? Connect, connects. Wait, yeah, yeah, connects, uh, is the, is the pathway between blockchains. So there's all these independent blockchains, which, which represent places people want to go. And it's like, well, how do I get from here to there? Well, oh, you takes the, you take the, the connects superhighway. And that, that to me feel, it feels like a good definition of public good. I think intrinsic in the definition of public good is that, it doesn't, it doesn't really move beyond, it has a goal and an end zone and it accomplishes that. And then innovation doesn't need to continue. Like there, like in the internet, there's not the same with the car net or the roads, like roads are kind of just, they're just, they maintained, right? we like fix potholes, but we're not building faster asphalt or, or things like we might run faster wires to, to connect throughput, but like we're just going to get to the point where it's like, maximum internet potential that's the, that's the goal of the utility companies that are currently well that's the thing though yeah well i mean that's the thing though it's like it's like 
there isn't, so obviously there is no key stakeholder group behind the internet, right? There's so many different people that are involved in making it a reality. And it is truly a commons. I mean, there's, mm. there's centralization that is happening behind, you know, uh, cloud computing resources and stuff like that, but it is a commons in the sense that like, the people working on the internet are like foundations, like, you know, like organizations like Mozilla, um, you know, centralized corporations like Cloudflare and Google. And then you have like, ICANN and other like, completely esoteric, like, uh, acronym name foundations that most people don't know about. And then like random research groups in the middle of nowhere that are doing things. And it is being worked on, right? Like we have upgrades to all of the protocols. I mean, we're rolling out and up, we're still rolling out the IPv6 upgrade. Um, that is supposed to, that has been, been rolled out for the last like 10 years or whatever, because it just takes a really long time to roll these things mm -hmm. out. Um, but you know, we're rolling out 5G internet now. We're rolling out like a lot of these other kinds of things that are, um, are basically upgrades to this system that allow it to perform better at the thing that it's performing. But because the internet is a commons, we're not doing the Amazon thing, which is, oh, we've built this really, really great marketplace. Okay, let's leverage that to go and build grocery stores, right? It's not like people on the internet are like, oh, we've built this really great communication network. Now let's leverage that to like go, well, arguably it is kind of what's happening. Actually, if you think about what's happening with blockchains, right? We are leveraging the internet to go and now take over money and take over finance, mm. take over government. Yeah. <laughs> so in a way it is kind of actually happening if yeah. you think about it. Um, I think, I think the difference is just that it's not like you're not doing it in an extractive way. Um, and that's, I think that's what matters is like, um, the core goal of the internet is not to make a bunch of people, like people make money from being on the internet. And so that's why it's like worth coordinating around. But like the goal is not just let's make a bunch of people money and, uh, for some st core stack of st set of stakeholders, that's the only reason that they're involved in the first place. But it, would, would you um, at least would you agree that er just about? I mean, when I think of Mozilla, who you, you know creates Firefox, who whose ninety nine percent of their revenue comes from Google, which comes from advertising. So it's like okay, consumers are drive effectively consumers are driving that engine, and purchasing power is capitalism. And then the utilities, like when I think of pay my electric bill, like PG and E or any utility Starlink that provides internet, they, they're, they're pretty competitive and they want to make money. Verizon, AT&T, like they're competing and buying each other and they have, you know, all the same capitalist incentives. So it's there, there's the internet, which is this benevolent kind of ab abstract idea. But then there's all these participators that make the internet a, a thing that exists. And it's like blockchain exists. But then it's like, well, the people, I, I'm sure that the people on every project, like Solana and, Ethereum, whoever owns those uh, currencies wants the tokens, wants that to go up. So they're working, you know, telling their boyfriend or their girlfriend, hey, like we're, we're doing this deploy and like, it's going to be great. We're going to take over market share and, and we're going to grow the token and buy that car you wanted or whatever. And like it, it, it all, it does, I mean, people can volunteer, you know, if, if people are fortunate enough to have made enough money in their life that they have enough what they want. They can give back, but I think like we're always constrained by the system that seeks to keep track of how much value you're adding to society. Like if we, the trap, the trap on the other side of the spectrum, like people who criticize capitalism, the other, the, the trap on the other side of like not having that scorecard for value is that we don't know how to track value. So people run in directions that are not useful. It's like people aren't doing anything productive. Yeah. And then the the price of that is pretty, exactly. pretty bad. So I, I, 
Yeah. This is something that you see at like nonprofits. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, uh, there's no, like, like there's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, corporations are really bad because like they're extracting value from users and extracting value from employees and stuff like that. But if you, if you look at like the way that nonprofits operate and like the kind of cost to benefit ratio of them, it's, it's atrocious. Like nonprofits raise an asset of capital. And then the, the problem is that they're not beholden to anybody. Um, as a nonprofit, you don't like in a, as a corporation, mm. if you don't find product market fit and if you don't actually generate some sort of utility for somebody, you have to be, you have to be benefiting somebody. You might be extracting value from a lot of other people. You might be doing it in a really shitty way. And unfortunately, the incentives right now are in many cases that you're doing it in a shitty way. But if you, if you're not benefiting someone, someone, you're going to die because ultimately mm-hmm. that's, that's the core thesis of a corporation. In a nonprofit, that's not the case, right? Like as a nonprofit, there's no, your, your, the, your longevity is not contingent for most nonprofits and most successful nonprofits. Your longevity is not contingent upon whether or not you actually successfully deployed the capital that you raised. Um, it's just contingent on how much more capital you can raise in the future based on your brand right. and based on your fundraising capability. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, there is a reason why a lot of leaders at nonprofits are paid an absurd amount of money. There's a reason why, you know, uh, they're like the, a very, very significant amount of money from nonprofits gets like laundered or doesn't actually end up going where it's supposed to go. Like you give money to, a lot of organizations that are supposed to be deploying it in, uh, you know, places in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, I, I mean, there's so many statistics that show like, oh, well, only like less than 20 cents of every dollar that you send actually goes to any of any anywhere even close to those those ecosystems. And it's because you just have a lot of people along the way being like, oh, well, you know, I'm absolutely going to use this to light my pockets mm. to do a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like these are. You know, it's might be in my, I, I don't like it's, there is a certain futility to human coordination. Um, uh, and <laughs> I think that's what we've, this is, this is definitely like a problem. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I think, I do think that you can get better at it. Like, I think that like, this is sort of the goal of the space. Like I, one thing that I I've observed is like, what you almost want to do is you can create like public goods. You can create these sort of like, interestingly cooperative, almost, almost like, socialized systems by by producing almost perfect competition Mm. um and great example a really good example of this is blockchain nodes so if you have a bunch of people running nodes in a in a in a in a blockchain um they are in perfect perfectly elastic competition with one another right that the benefits that some of them have versus others now of course there's some mechanisms like there's things like economies of scale and stuff like that that you have to worry about around the technology and these are things that that need to be worked on and that people are working on but the the core thesis is that you are always earning a proportional share of the revenue of the network compared to the amount of work or stake that you're putting in and so there's no there is no monopolizing right like fundamentally it's not possible to monopolize and also your incentive is not to monopolize because you you sort of all want to always be locked into this perfect competition with each other your incentive is to try to gain as much market share as you can but if you gain too much market share you're now decreasing the value of the entire ecosystem right and because you're locked in this perfect competition with each other with all the other stakers you're now actually incentivized to collaborate on the system that you're building on because anything that you can do now to decrease your marginal costs which can be borne collectively by everybody. Anything that you can do to kind of bring those costs down is benefits everyone and also specifically benefits your own business and benefits your own margins. Mm. Um, 
And I've noticed that this is a pattern that you can actually copy paste to a bunch of other places as well that is quite interesting. Now, you have to be careful because it's like, you also don't want to create a race. You, you want to create perfect competition without creating a race to the bottom. Because if you have a race to the bottom, that's also bad. Because if you have a race to the bottom, what ends up happening is people keep undercutting on fees. Eventually, you just get somebody with big enough pockets who comes and charges zero. And then they price everybody out. And then they raise the prices, which happens all the time. So you have to find some way to enforce, make basically peer enforcement. Again, I, I, the, the, the only reliable mechanism that we've ever developed to do this is a blockchain. Um, but that you sort of need some sort of like peer enforcement to make sure that people are charging the same fees as each other. And they're not like trying to exploit or sort of manipulate the, the like core economics of the system. I, I love that. I love, I love what you said to me. I, I, I see, I mean, as you're describing it, I can, I can see it in parallel to what we have in the traditional system though. Like, tell me, tell me where this doesn't, doesn't line up for you is that, so take the case of like, uh, attention, the attention marketplace, like Facebook has been dominant player in that TikTok is in there. Many other companies play in that space and monetize off that through advertising. Hugely valuable. It's like, it's driven a lot of the economy and many different products and services. There is a concern centrally by the government, which is just a reflection of the shareholders or the, the, the token holders, the pe- citizens of that country, that if any p- particular company gets too much of a market share of the attention economy, then we call that a monopoly. We get really concerned about that. And so th- there's a lot of concern politically about the monopolies effect of, uh, you know, the big tech like Facebook and they've been subpoenaed and, and all that. And that has been to me a, a very parallel, uh, equilibrium or uh, equalizing force to what you described in the mining world. Like if, if one node had all the mining capacity, well, we would be very concerned as members of the, you know, the token holders. And so we would either leave and like sell off and the price would drop and this, this uh, node would effectively be losing market share. So it's within the nodes self-interest to have other competitors, but to have very few to maybe have like two. And so you end up with this polarization, which which I think is the same principle of the universe as what creates the polarization politically. It's like we have two large political parties that equally, that have enough power uh, to push the other one, but not push the other one over. Because if they push the other one over all the way, then the system gets incredibly unstable. And then it explodes and like a revolution happens. Or in the case of Bitcoin or blockchain, then everyone leaves and there's, there's like, they go put their money in other currencies. And I think that that, that would happen whether it, it's almost just like a, a, it's like a fact, it feels like a fact of the universe. It's like Pareto's principle means that things consolidate to the point where they're hyper consolidated and there's only one and then it explodes and it's like all, and there's, you know, it's like yeah. it's like it's the universe itself, right? It's like it kind of represents that pattern yeah. of like the Big Bang. Poof, it's chaos. It's everywhere. It condenses. Like all the stars condense together, and solar systems condense, and matter condenses, and then poof, it blows up again. I wonder if I don't know, man. That's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's a little bit different in the sense that, like, so the the big difference that I would say between these those two systems, which are like blockchains uh, and like blockchain nodes versus um, you know what is existing with like traditional corporations that are monopolizing, is that like 
in blockchain nodes, I, w- I would say that it's actually most likely going to be a lot more than two to three because, like, I think you can. I mean, the goal is to avoid that kind of blockchain distribution, right? Like, because if you end up in that kind of uh, uh, in that kind of distribution of power and and uh, like distribution of like mining power or or staking power in in these networks, then that's objectively quite bad for the network because you've taken this thing that is like a public good and you've turned it into like a small conglomerate of corporations. Um, and, uh, and so I think like in, in those cases, the incentives are not to do that because like people will just move to a different chain eventually, um, for, for like, eventually this thing will just hit the same sort of issues with like centralization that exists in the world today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the other, the other big difference is that in, in, with traditional corporations, like you don't actually have that kind of perfect, perfect competition because what ends up happening is we have governments that can be lobbied. Right. And so governments, are, governments don't end up actually slapping these companies like on the wrist. They don't end up doing anything to regulate these companies. They end up just like either not doing anything or actively supporting them. Um, you know, like you have companies like Amazon uh, aggressively lobbying to make it to, to have governments create regulations that make it so that they can be the only player so that they can shut out new entrants to the market so that they maintain their monopoly forever. Um, and that's something that I think like fundamentally is what I would like to avoid in our space. It's like, I don't, this is, this is one of the problems with governance. I mean, I think governance overall is just really bad. I think human beings are really bad at coordinating around things. And like, I think that like, especially when it comes to governance, like it's just so easy to like bribery and governance is something that is never going to be able to be stopped. And like, so the less you're able to govern the better in the sense that like, when you leave things open to the public to decide, Oh, do we do like this large range of activities? The, the likelihood that bribing occurs is just exponentially increased. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, something that like, I would, I would hope that, you know, we can try to avoid in our ecosystem is try to create, like, you know, this is, this is definitely a problem with DAOs today, but try to create systems that like, don't need to have as many levers that don't, aren't as susceptible to somebody with a lot of money coming in and just saying, I'm going to buy this entire ecosystem. Mm. It it almost seems like, uh, and, uh, influence it. It almost seems like I see now how, what you said earlier about the crypto world, just going through the same, uh, trip wires as was in the traditional world, just at light speed. It's like, well, okay, here's what's going on is that you have this, uh, you have a competition across miners who can provide mining power. And the, here's the key factor though. The person who's winning is more likely to win in the future because they gain resources that allow them to invest in computational power centralization. So it's like the fact it's like, um, you know, a sports team as a sports team wins, they're recruiting more people and, and better players. And those better players want to cut, you know, better, the best players out of high school want to come there. And then it, it, it kind of snowballs and co- like, look what happened in the Bitcoin mining world. Like it used to be, you could mine Bitcoin on your, com- your laptop and your computer and your room. And now it's like massive warehouses and publicly traded companies that are like, I don't know how many, the percent, the distribution, like the pie graph is like 12 major players. And then yeah. have to be in like, green yeah, something to be, and it's like, what do it economically. What the market really wants is, uh, is, is, is efficient mining. That's what the market wants. And all you need, the, 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 the way that you optimize efficient mining is you have, uh, you have a competitive landscape. So you have to have at least two. If you have one, there's no competition. They can charge whatever they want. But if you have two and you have complete freedom to move between them, 
lo- like extremely low switching costs, which there are, then 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 they keep each other in check. It's like the fact that there's two, they're they're only going to drop as low as they can, and so that race to the bottom happens. It's like I don't I don't see how it how does that not happen? Like how do we not end up with a situation that is as long as the as long as the mining space is is hyper efficient and uh, and there's no barriers or g- regulations, which there's not, then it just seems like it just ends it too. I mean, they just eat each other and eat each other. So I think what you have to stop, what you basically have to stop is sort of like, uh, like it's true that it is always, I think there is no possible way to stop the idea that if you have more capital, you're going to be able to get more capital. That's just, there's there's no way to stop that, I think. Um, I think what you can stop is the multiplicative effects of that where um you are able to then leverage that capital to like create even bigger compounding unfair um, unfairness in a system that then makes it so that you can like monopolize further and further and further um and that's different i mean I, I think that one is easier because in that that you can do by making sure that the system's rules are like fundamentally set in a way that can be changed without like really much more complex coordination and things like that um but yeah, I think the first case of like, you can't stop the, I mean, I think this is, and it's not, you might not even want to stop it, right? Like there's, this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, where you have this like progressive of evolution, where things kind of compound on top of each other, and like they continue building on top of each other. And this is how like, human society has evolved. This is how, you know, evolution has happened. This is how knowledge works at a fundamental level. Um, it's, it seems like, that compounding action is also just like a fundamental piece of nature. Mm. Um, and it it's unclear whether you would want that to stop. Because I think if you had that stop, then uh, the incentive, I think a lot of the incentives to do things also kind of is mm. But it is a really difficult question. Yeah. Um, it's this is, these are exactly the sorts of questions that we need to be asking, yeah. because they're like, these are questions that like about society and economics that people have asked for a really long time. And this is the first time and first time we ever have a chance to like do something about it that is meaningful, right? This is the first time we can build systems, like we can run experiments on it that can scale. And we can run hundreds and hundreds of experiments on this in a year rather than like, you know, one grand experiment because we built a large empire over the course of a hundred years. Um, and so it's like my my bet is there are probably solutions to this stuff. Um, those solutions will have trade-offs. And as a society, we'll have to kind of consider what those trade-offs are and whether those trade-offs are worthwhile. But there are probably better, like we, we won't have like a perfect solution to anything, but I think we'll probably be able to like improve. We, we will be able to at least stop what's happening right now, which is the massive acceleration of inequality. Like mm. the, the rate at which, like, obviously, at, as a, at an absolute level, all human beings' lives have massively improved compared to even 100 years ago. Um, the average human being's lives is massive, massively improved. Even the worst human being uh, in the worst possible conditions today is doing better than many human beings are doing 500 years ago. Um, however, uh, the gap between... Um, like the top and the bottom, uh, while it got better for some time, has now gone back to where it was in feudal era, where you had wealthy 
kings and queens and royalty and then serfs. Uh, and like that, that difference is at the same place that it was back then. And that is definitely the problem to fix now. Um, it, you won't be able to completely fix it, but at least making it so that there's like, it's more reasonable is, is the goal. I, I, I see it as a one way street that just keeps going in circles, but I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I mean, if you, if you take wealth from people that are in, on the top end of the, you know, 1%, so to speak, then you're slowing the progress there, but you're not, you're just, you're reducing the overall, like for every, hypothetically, for everyone to have the same starting point in society, you have to take away everyone's money and you, you end up in this, like, I mean, it's like, it's, that's the, that's the theory of communism is that we, we all are equal. And by definition, we're not incentivized to, uh, to, to the incentive to work comes from the incentive to generate return on that investment of time and energy. And that the reason you want to do that is so you have an accumulation of wealth that you can spend. And if you take away that engine, it's like you're now you have a centralized distribution of currency, like the government gives everyone the same, or they dictate what you work, what you earn. And then you you like, this is the, (laughs) this is a, this is the, problem with this side of the governance spectrum is that people who are not being compensated for their efforts decrease their efforts like so everyone's half-assing the job like you know government workers on the job that have no incentive to work harder like it's yeah i don't i think that's kind of silly too like uh, the i mean i i think like there are a lot of really important things so i i tend to fall into like the uh, social anarchist camp, which is like, if you have like your, your traditional political compass where you sort of have like, you know, um, left, right is like, you know, capitalism on like full laissez-faire, like libertarian capitalism on one side. And then like full sort of like basically like the opposite end of the spectrum is like full communism. And then top and bottom is like, uh, or sorry, it's, uh, left is capitalism, right is communism and top and bottom is like bottom is libertarian and, uh, top is authoritarian. And I think a lot of like when people think about like communism, they think of sort of like authoritarian communism, um, you know, like Leninism and stuff like that. Um, and then I think when a lot of people think about like capitalism, they think like totally free market capitalism, which is like, you know, bottom uh, corner or other end of the spectrum. Um, and, uh, and I think that like there is a, a largely like on, unex- there are like a lot of like, the, the reality of society is actually just in a box. It's like right in the in the middle. Almost the entirety of society is just like right in the center area right now. Um, but there, I think, is is a lot of really interesting stuff that happens. Um, it's it's not a, like a full solution. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that happens where you you know you don't you don't have authoritarianism like traditional communist governments uh, because again authoritarianism is institutions and I hate institutions. I do really think that institutions are bad, but you, 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 you have like individual property and individual rights. Um, but you do have socialism in the sense that you, uh, understand that you basically like attribute value to public goods. You attribute value to like, um, things that are part of the commons. And you, you say that, uh, the, the, the mechanism by which people can produce value itself needs to be part of the commons, right? It's not owned by a private company, it's owned by individuals. Um, and I think that there's something something interesting there. I mean, the, the reason that social anarchism has always been thrown out in the past was like, how do you enforce it, right? Like, you're, you're basically telling people, oh, 
your small group of a hundred people are going to govern yourselves. Mm. Um, so how are you going to enforce that? Um, and you know, a long time ago that was able to be enforced just through peer enforcement. But I think like, because of the way that the world works now, it's a lot harder. Um, but blockchains might give us a way out of that. Where it's like, now you can enforce it using some on-chain mechanism mm. that everybody has agreed to beforehand and is buying into. And now the cost of enforcement is almost nothing. So you can have lots and lots and lots of small hundred person groups. Um, and instead of requiring, you know, uh, 10 million people to vote on something, you can actually just have 100,000 100 person groups that are all doing small niche specific things that are coordinating each other in more of a swarm way. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting. It's, it's not, it might not be the full solution. Um, you know, I think that there are certainly problems associated still with like, I, I don't think like the abolishment of capital itself is, is realistic at all. Like this doesn't make any sense. But I also don't think that like markets and capital itself is, is, is capitalism, mm. right? Like I think you can, you, there is a, there is a lot of modern social, socialist, socio-anarchic literature that, um, uh, argues that markets are actually fundamentally not capitalism. They like it's capitalism is like the exploitative ownership of the market itself. But if the market is the public good, then it's fine. And that's actually itself more communist because now people are owning the means by which they are like the, the the means by which you are able to generate value is owned by the public. Mm. Um, but yeah, this is a, it's a really interesting question, and and of course, like it gets into this a lot of this like really deep theoretical stuff around political uh, political science and and philosophy that is interesting and not always very useful. yeah yeah it's like uh well i think it's about i think it's yeah. <laughs> it may not be useful but it's valuable to know it's valuable to build coherent arguments on top of it's like why is philosophy useful well it's useful yeah. because it's the bedrock of every other opinion you have it's like well a- abortion or gun rights or immigration it's like these political debates get thrown around and f- frankly some of them like whatever team you're on left or right they don't there's what's the guiding philosophy or principle behind this team and that i think is it's like weak bedrock right now like there, there's not enough philosophical conversations there's too many practical conversations and those practical conversations don't have anything to to latch onto. and so they're like you get politicians like saying just uh clearly lambosted ideas it's like you know that th- that unless you or like yeah yeah exactly so like oh that is right right. everybody everyone is claiming to each other no that's socialism and we're like no that's communist. but like it's like no none of these things are any of these things at all actually these are all all again in this it's very very small box of things it's like right in the middle of the political compass and none of these things are actually very that like like radical in any way yeah yeah (laughs) and are you proposing would you consider it a radical change in what you'd like to see or what you think we should move towards or is it a slight change? Yeah. Um, I think so. So I guess like one thing, you know, we ta- you mentioned, you touched upon like the two party American political system. And we're starting to see that in a lot of other places. I think a part of the reason that that exists is because we have this like binary option vote. So you, you end up in a yes, no situation because you can only say yes or no. So you end up in a situation where you have two options because you have to say yes or no to one or the other. If you had better voting mechanisms, like I think, I think a part of the problem is that like, governance and the, the concept of voting is is can really be broken down into information theory which is like how are you going to 
collect, how are you in the most efficient way possible going to collect the sentiment of the correct people across the, the country, um, that are able to opine on a given topic without burning them out because they're voting constantly or without ending up in a situation like you have currently where you're just having people be single issue voters. Um, and I, and I, it's, a, it's a really difficult question. Uh, and I think the answer is just like, don't have everybody vote on everything. Like, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Don't have like large scale institutions. It doesn't yeah. work, uh, you know, like, yeah. Uh, well, th- but at the same time, I, I do think I was going to add one point to that. It seems like one, one flaw I've observed during COVID is that, uh, in the medical profession, which is, it's nothing unique about the medical profession. My wife is a doctor and she will, uh, talk about this on the inside is like, there's a lot like what's, what's, what's being portrayed as like mainstream consensus medical opinion is not a representation of an authentic, uh, trust vote happening across doctors. It's like, there's a, I use the word like political pressure, but ultimately it's like, Hey, the, the corporation that you're employed at this hospital system wants to make money. And, and if you don't abide by what we say, then we're more likely to fire you. And so you step in line and the same thing is true for, uh, academic research and science. And so this is where I think, or if they are the CEO yeah, of a publicly traded totally, corporation. Totally. It's like, well, yeah. the story I want to believe is the one that makes me more money. And that's th- like that's the that's the trap. It's like when people say trust the science, what they what they're really saying is like trust what the for-profit organizations are saying, uh, using one pathway of the scientific method that m- is somehow biased. Like it's in order to have uh, the most authentic form of scientific research, the outcomes of what you discover have to be completely detached from the funding mechanism. Like, if, if, if like, yeah, you know, if a, if a, yeah. obviously if a, if a vaccine company, if Pfizer is paying researchers to do research and they say, well, Hey, if you don't get what we want, we're not going to fund you anymore. It's like, well, no surprise where that goes. Now that doesn't mean that they don't generate authentic results. And that's the largely where the political waters meet is like, how authentic are these? And people debate this all day, but that's at least bringing to awareness what the incentives are, the problems with the incentives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think like your, your kind of original question around this was like, do, do, does there need to be radical change? I think increasingly, yes. Like, I, and it's not, it's not that I'm suggesting that we there needs to be uh you know a revolution or whatever i'm saying what i'm saying is that that is inevitable uh unless there is radical change so like you know we we talked a little bit about like the rise and fall of empires we talked a little bit about like you know is there a way to potentially break out of that cycle in this case is there a way to avoid the the like inevitable you know like it's like at we will get to the point we will if things continue on the path that they are continuing on we will get to the eat the rich point. Mm. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the guillotine point. Mm. <laughs> and I think that that's like the, the, that, that's like sort of the tipping point where like, you know, that, that, like that society collapses and then another model yeah. starts. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I do, I would like, you know, I, that may be necessary. It may be the only option, but what I would like to do also is if there is a way to f- make things better without doing that, that would be great too. Because 
the negative externalities of revolution and vinyl revolutions are often very glorified. And, you know, like people are always like, oh my God, French Revolution, like the rise of democracy in France. And it was, it was the, the overthrowing of this really, really shitty system. But if there was actually a way to do that without, uh, you know, the massive negative externalities that happened as a result of it, that would have also yeah. been great, right? Like uh, the same kind of revolution happened in India without a bunch of people. Yeah. Dying. Yeah. It's well, that, the, the, it feels like the evolutionary part of where we are today versus then was that the consolidation of power in the t- the times you're referring to, like uh, the French Revolution, was that it was governmental consolidation of power, and it was also an arrogance. So you sprinkle like centralization of governmental power, which is given to the government either from the threat of violence to people or voluntarily by a, a constitution. And then also arrogance on top of that saying, you can't ever take it away from us. Now, if you look at the, the, the two things, those two things are different today. The people who have consolidated power have done, th- done so through the capitalistic a system. You know, they've like Elon, right? He's worked really hard. He's built an incredible amount of value and you can't deny that. And so you're left with the situation of like, okay, he's done good stuff to, to people give him money, right? He didn't take any money from anybody. And, and also I, you said earlier, you don't know whether Zuckerberg is a good person or not. It's like the, the people who have seemed to be running these large companies, they're either faking it really well, or they're convincing me that they're generally hardworking, thoughtful people who want good in the world. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't look at Elon and think, oh, he's arrogant. He just wants as much money as possible. Um, and I don't feel that way about Zuckerberg either. Like, I think they have genuine good intentions. And so I'm not liable to, I, I don't see a world where like we cut off Warren Buffett's head and say, you're a bad, like, it, it doesn't seem like that they don't have that attitude. And so that, I think that's the, that's the trick or that's the puzzle that we're in. It's like, what do you do with that? You know, you've, you've gotten this means through good intent, you know, people have given you all this money because you worked really hard. Maybe. I think there are a lot of people that disagree. And, and, tell me. Thing. Like, there are a lot of people that don't like, like, oh, sure. Don't like, Zuckerberg, yeah. don't like, yeah. I mean, I, I would say like, you know, our interpretation of it is much more terrible than the majority of people. What do you think is the, is the, um, especially outside of like, what's the best steel man argument in, on that side of the table? Cause I don't hear enough of that, frankly. Like what, what, what's the best criticism of Zuck and Elon? And I mean, there's so much, um, I mean, I think I see it, again, it's like in, in many cases, a lot of this stuff is like, not, it's interesting because it's like, on the one hand, it is totally valid. Um, and, but on the other hand, it's like, I think it's naive to assume that it's the person and it's, and not just mm-hmm. the system. Right. And like my, my sort of, uh, my, my sort of philosophy on this stuff is like, we are, it's not, I don't, I don't blame Elon for being really wealthy. I, you know, I do think he's actually doing some good stuff. He's, he is an asshole. Don't get me wrong. He is absolutely an asshole. I know like my co-founder worked for him. Um, uh, he, I know plenty of people currently work for him and they agree, yeah. all agree that he's a huge asshole and that he's an unreasonable person and that he creates generally incredibly terrible working conditions. And he has done a lot of really shady shit as have most people with a lot of wealth because any, everybody does shady shit sometimes. And like when you have a lot of money, that's just magnified significantly. But I also think it's not his fault that this is that the world is in this place. I think we just have a system that produces billionaires. We have a a broken system that creates 
the right incentive mechanisms for some people to end up in this position and then and then and then for some subset of those people to abuse that position um and and an increasing incentive for a larger number of them to abuse that position because if they don't abuse that position they fall out of that position and so then you sort of like it's sort of like the the like survivorship bias where you're just like you you see the ones that are succeeding because and the, the ones like the the sort of philosophy of like okay well these are the worst like these people are causing the problems or whatever is is because like they are the ones who have actually just like lasted this long and it's unclear whether they've lasted this long because they've had to compromise on their ethics or it's because they just like kind of lucked into it and they're eventually going to have to compromise on their ethics mm. or something but we are in a system that does make you compromise on a lot of things to maintain that level of mm. wealth um and some people are more willing to do it yeah. than others um i, I don't intrinsically think that there is anything amoral immoral about being extremely wealthy um i do think morally you're obligated to do things that are better for the world because of it and i think that if you are a person that succeeds to that level you actually need to be held to a higher standard than mm -hmm. not the same standard a much higher standard um and that's difficult it is like but like it, it's i sort of believe in this idea of like if you have privilege, you're morally obligated to do something with it. Um, if you are a person that has grown up in a, in a, in a situation that where like you can help people and you don't help people, then I mean, then you're, you're yeah. not using your position for good. And that's actually a bad thing. Like doing nothing in the face of evil. Yeah, it's morale. If the word morality means anything, it means that it, it means when you can do something. Yeah. It is right. There's a, there's a spectrum of morality, right? Like how much of a cost do I have to pay to benefit somebody else? And, and the farther you go down that low cost, high benefit, the more moral obligation people have, right? It's like, if we want anything, we want the flourishing of as many people as most as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, it's it's a really really interesting. I mean, I'm, I, this has been a really interesting conversation because we've been able to touch on so many different aspects of like society, economics, governance, and like generally a thesis of how all these things fit together and and like and how that ties into crypto overall. And I think that's so important because there's a lot of you know a lot of people who are in this space, uh, especially a lot of people that have joined over the course of the last couple of years when we've been in a bull market, have not really had the opportunity to understand like what is the the ethos that is driving this stuff, right? It's like the the there is still a core group of like I would say probably less than a few thousand people in the space that are the ones who really have been here for a while and are just never going to leave and who truly truly like their goal is like even if the, many of them have made a lot of capital that like you would. They're not, they are not the people that are going and buying landlords, right? They're the people that are still living, living in little houses, like spending a hundred percent of their time working on trying to figure out how to make the world actually better. Like trying to, trying to figure out how to solve this incredibly difficult problem that like we've all been banging our heads against for a while. Um, and, and, and that this problem of like, how can we build things that are, that remain good, mm. that can't be evil? Mm. Um, and they can't become evil at some point in the future because of outside. Influence. Yeah. And, and, and evil, evil is, the, is like, yeah, re I mean, re really that's the synthesis of what it's about, right? Is like, how do you minimize, yeah. I, I, I think of it as like, how do you minimize the potential impact that 
evil tendencies are likely to have on a system while knowing that to try to extinguish evil is a fool's errand and will only result in in chaos and, and widespread evil. It's like, that's the, that's the thing. It's like you have to, a system that's corrupt is a good system as long as the corruption is at a minimum level. And it's like, you have, you have, you know that there's some, there's, you always got to pay those gas fees, man. It's like, <laughs> you can't operate with a, with a utopian mindset. Um, exactly. Yeah. And like, and that's basically it. It's like, you, you can't, it's not, it's not the people, you know, people, I don't, I fundamentally don't think people, I, I don't, I think it's extraordinarily rare to actually have intrinsically evil people. I think people always believe they're doing the right thing. They might have the most convoluted possible mechanism for believing they're doing the right thing. And to everybody else, it might immediately be very, very apparent that they are doing something that is fundamentally evil. But I think really in many of these cases, it's not the people, it's the mm. systems. It's not, you know, it's like, it's Hanlon's razor. No, you know, it sounds you know familiar. Um, you know, Occam's, yeah, yeah, razor. Occam's razor. Uh, so Occam's razor is of course like, you know, uh, like in, in, any, if you have a, a set of different things, uh, like different solutions to a problem, the, the, the one that is the most likely solution is the simplest one. Um, it's just basically simplicity always wins. Um, Hanlon's razor is, is about incentives and, uh, Hanlon's razor is never attribute to malice what you can in- attribute mm. to incentives and never attribute to incentives what you could attribute to mm. stupidity. <laughs> mm. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. That seems to, that, that, that resonates with me. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a there's a incredible potential, man, of of uh, this technology to reorganize the way that we compensate people, pay people, uh, allow people to contribute their ideas, and, and you know through voting. <clears throat> and so much of the ecosystem seems to be about making money. You know, the vast majority of it is speculation dollars. Which it's like I'm so slow to label things as good or bad. It's like I don't know. So you ever hear this pro this is a good proverb. You ever heard of Alan Watts? Yeah, he is yeah, yeah he's I love great. Him. He's fantastic. It's like uh he, he reminds me of the, the proverb that says uh there's a farmer and he's out in his farm with his son and uh his son is uh riding a horse and falls off the horse and breaks his leg and they go into the town at night and it's like, Oh, that's so bad that you broke your leg. I'm so sorry. And uh he says, oh, no, that's, you know, maybe is his response. And he gets the next day, the, the government comes around conscription, conscription, and they're, they're uh, recruiting people to join the military. And he doesn't have to serve because he broke his leg. And they're like, oh, that's so great that you don't have to serve. And he's like, well, maybe. It's like, <laughs> just keeps going on like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know we're, uh, we're pushing, pushing the uh, over two hour mark. I know it's late where you are. Um, but yeah. Uh, are there places, people in particular, that have inspired you to think deeply? I know you, you went to school for philosophy, I believe, or physics and philosophy. So I was excited to get into this conversation yes. in the first place, seeing that. Um, who, yeah, who, who have you learned the most or feel inspired by the most? Um, hmm, that's a really good question. I spent, when I was young, uh, I don't know why this happened, but when I was young, I went through a very, very aggressive political philosophy phase. So I spent a lot of time reading a lot of political theory um, and uh, a lot of, you know, Kant, um, uh, a lot of like Rawls uh, trying to understand the concepts of equality and justice. Um, um, I would say like, you know, those things are obviously quite like 
heavy. Uh, um, but I think that there is some like interesting modern philosophy around this stuff, around ethics that is being done by like uh, Alice Crory, for instance. And uh, and like there's a whole branch of like ethics and ethical judgment and ethics in society associated with Wittgenstein, which is really interesting. Um, I think other than that, in like a more modern sense, um, um, I, I think something, something that really just like woke me up to some of the ways of thinking about innovation in society was, um, the blog way, mm. which is really much, much more approachable for most people than, than really deep philosophy. Um, but then from there reading about like, you know, how we actually know the things that we know, like the whole, the whole process of, of epistemology, uh, which is the field of understanding knowledge, um, is, was, was very eye-opening. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think, I think like those are a lot of the, the like key influences for me to go down this path. Um, the other thing that was like really influential was that I was just like, uh, I just happened to be just fortuitously happened to be very heavily involved in like, um, the like IRC communities when as like one of the first sort of social experiences that I had on the internet. And like a lot of the IRC communities that I was involved with were also like deeply involved in peer to peer file sharing. So there was a lot of like, a lot of the early, like the, a lot of the things that actually were the, the things that led to crypto being created were, uh, were the discussions that were happening in those places. And it was really, really interesting to hear about like, you know, why information should be open and why it wants to be free and like why it should, why we should live, try to live in a world where, where like you can have, uh, you know, um, universal public access to, to different kinds of mm. resources. Um, at least, at least, uh, uh, I would say like, uh, ethically and sort of, uh, like motivation wise, these are the things that kind of have led me down. Mm. To are you a big Aaron Schwartz fan? Um, yeah, I am. Um, I didn't learn about him until like uh, a lot later than I think most people, just because I was outside of the U S and it wasn't really talked about outside the U S as much. Um, uh, and, uh, and I, that was also in the period of time when I was like, had kind of had, uh, a little bit of a separation from that whole community for like five years or so, just because I just like, this was, I actually missed all of Bitcoin because of this, um, uh, really, really bad thing to miss. But, um, um, I, I did, I did like, I am a huge fan of Aaron. I, I think what happened to him is one of the most awful tragedies and i still am super super frustrated yeah by it. yeah yeah it's definitely motivating i mean when someone gives their life to something like that yeah it's like, it just it cements home how important it is you know um do you, last question yeah. for you do you ever follow or read any of the yeah. eastern philosophy the uh get into any um buddhism or hinduism or the vedantas or any of the yogic practices i noticed you have a yeah um so my, i was gonna say do you have a, do you have an indian yeah. tattoo on your arm yeah yeah the tattoo yeah i'm my, i'm actually indian ethnically my parents are indians um i mean i i am indian as well technically like i have a indian passport i just grew up in the uae um and uh, and my parents are hindus um not super religious uh i i think like generally i mean they've been very blessed to have extremely like open-minded parents who have always been very like international have always i've lived in extremely multi multicultural environment which helped a lot um but i did have a lot of exposure to hinduism and then through that buddhism because they're 
they're so closely related in so mm-hmm. many ways um, from a very early age. Um, and I think that, that that has shaped a lot of the way that I think about things. Uh, it's like, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm a very, very strong anti-materialist. Um, I uh, remember there was a point in my life where I, um, for a long time, I maintained only, and for a long time, I was really anal about this and I had less than 300 possessions um, that included like pencils and pens uh, and uh, everything that I owned, less than 300 things. Um, and then, I mean, I've, I've certainly relaxed that quite a bit, but I actually, I still largely live out of a one carry-on suitcase that I take on a plane and I am fairly nomadic. Um, I don't like, uh, you know, I, I do think that, um, I do agree, subscribe to a lot of the like core tenets of Buddhism and of that philosophy. Um, I don't, I mean, it's not the religious tenets, but at least like the philosophical mm, tenets. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, I feel like there's a, there's a, uh, almost like a accumulation. There's an, a wisdom potential that I, I can smell where if you have an understanding of what, what ancient religions are, uh, espousing what, what they're getting after and what they're getting to, what they're trying to describe and articulate. And then you understand political thinkers, philosophical thinkers, like there's some, there's some accumulation of knowledge. That's like one plus one is three. I, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, yeah. humbly just starting to accumulate as much as I can and get, get a perspective as big as I can. Um, but I, I think that that's somehow a part of the breakthrough in, in consciousness that, that we can have as people. It's like, and that's, you know, directly in line with what we're talking about is, opening up all the channels for information and then allowing creatives to yeah. synthesize it and then put it on a plate in a, in a blog like way, but why? <laughs> so people can understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I think there's like, there are, there are, I mean, this is something that like, I like, it's so astounding because, you know, I, I studied physics and it was largely th- like, I was very interested in theoretical physics but it's so astounding the way that the core principles from theoretical physics carry over to so many other things. So a lot of the core ways of thinking. And what I, what I'm realizing is that they're actually just like larger patterns in um, systems and in human thought that over time, as you begin to become an expert in multiple fields simultaneously, you start to see those patterns across different fields. And um, those fields are not just scientific fields. Like you can see a set of patterns around scientific fields. But you also see larger patterns around like philosophical fields and around like, you know, life philosophies like Buddhism and then around like other kinds of things like sociological primitives and like economic primitives. Um, and, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a very intuitive thinker uh, just by nature. Uh, I, I tend to intuit a lot of answers prior, before I'm able to like analytically express why I understand something or understand a certain pr- pattern. Um, but I, I, I do think I, my intuition and I still haven't gotten to the point where I truly like am able to like write down a lot of these patterns, but my intuition is that there are some very, there are basically a set of meta primitives that exist on top of a lot of these things that, um, are fundamental, either rules of the universe or rules of our own brains. And mm-hmm. it's unclear which, uh, and those meta primitives, those meta patterns to things are, yet to be strictly defined but once we are able to better define them uh once our capacity to learn a lot of things very quickly increases we will be able to better define them and i think that'll lead to a better understanding of consciousness and a better understanding of Mm. society um i like that there's a there's a guy uh 
older guy now, but he's still alive, Ken Wilber, who uh, writes about this in the form of integral theory. So he has this theory of conscious consciousness evolution called integral theory, which is pretty fascinating. It kind of relates to or describes a lot of what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, where are you? Are you on Twitter and the throw out the uh, the best place to learn more about uh, connects to? Yes, uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Arjibutani. Um I guess the full name will be oh, yeah, yeah. on the podcast, so you will just find that because <laughs> um, uh, uh, we are, are the Connects Twitter is at Connects Networks. That's C O N N E X T Network, um, and uh, and then your our website is Connects.network. Um and then you can also join our Discord, which is where our community hangs out, which is Discord.gg slash Connects. Um, definitely keep up to date with what we're doing. I think uh, we we're trying to espouse as many of these, like, uh, of course, like, you know, a lot of this has been like highly theoretical talk on this, on this podcast. So we, we actually really are trying to think about a lot of these problems and trying to like espouse a lot of these core principles around decentralization and trying to genuinely produce better systems for the world. Um, and, uh, and if you have an interest in it, we'd love to talk to you. Sweet, man. I love it. This has been an honor. You're the reason why I do these podcasts. So thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.